The following is presented by the Center for Political Innovation, CPI, Building American Socialism for the 21st Century. To learn more, visit cpiusa.org. Hey, everybody. How are you doing tonight? Welcome, welcome, welcome. So glad to have you here with us. We're going to have a fun little late-night chat. Happy Easter to those of you who observe Easter. Um, uh, happy, happy Passover to those of you who celebrate Passover. I think it was yesterday. Uh, and uh, happy, uh, happy Ramadan, Ramadan Mubarak uh, to those of you observing the Muslim month of Ramadan. Got a lot of great stuff to talk about. Um, so yeah, uh, hit the like button, hit the subscribe button, hit the notifications bell. Uh, we'll turn the light on so you can see me. Uh, there you go. And we'll get some of the American century. I say that the century on which we are entering can be and must be the century of the common man. A radical redistribution of economic power. I mean, we know that racism is just, is just a byproduct of capitalism. Everything will be all right if everything was put back in the hands of the people. We need a government that will make sure Americans are taken care of and organize the economy to serve the people, not the profits of a wealthy few. We now have the techniques and the resources to get rid of poverty. We got to start getting out there with the people. Get out of the movement and get to the masses. We need a government of action. Welcome, everybody. So glad to have you here. Welcome, welcome. Uh, yeah, it's been a pretty wild day. Um, I spent the afternoon in Union Square uh, with my good friend and a friend of this community. Shout out if you're watching, Don D from NYC. And Don D from NYC and myself, uh, we were out in the street uh, leafleting uh, for the Center for Political Innovation. Uh, with, you know, we have signs uh, on our table that said, uh, Russia is not our enemy. NATO and, and Wall Street and NATO fascists are. Uh, and uh, we leafleted. We got quite a few leaflets out. It was a, an afternoon. It was a little cold because the wind was blowing here in New York City. Um, but it was, it was nice. And I got to tell you, folks, the response that we got out in Union Square blew my mind because I assumed it was just like it was two weeks ago or three weeks ago when everyone was up in arms about Russia, evil Russia. Russia is the most evil country ever to exist. Russia is murdering, blah, 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 blah. Well, there was a little bit of that, but mostly, uh, you know, we had a large number of positive responses. Um, but I actually took a little bit of video. I couldn't film myself, obviously, but I did film Don interacting with a couple people. So I'll just show you a little bit of video from when we were out, out today. Real quick, just a couple clips from when we were out today in Union Square, uh, you know, doing some anti-imperialist uh, outreach uh, in New York City on, on Easter afternoon. That's the counter word. That's the word you start coming back in response to this over. Well, that's, we've known this for a long time. That's no counter word. We've known this for eight years. Well, maybe, maybe, maybe people have known it sort of in certain circles or whatever. Right. It's not but the general public, no, I just caught wind of it in the general public. Exactly. They're still covering it up. It's still not news. To them, it's not news. The truth is not news. Now, what is it? What's the, what's the, um, like, rationale for, like, slaughtering the whole the question people, but they, they're politically aligned with Russia? Or they, it was basically, it was their political alignment that they're after. The U.S. is behind this. The U.S. wants to draw Russia into a long battle that they're not, you know, Russia. Is, war with Russia. Yes. Russia 
would not be there. Yeah, yeah, that was just, you know, answering people's questions. And later, uh, there was somebody who was doing like a little documentary, and so they walked up to our table. So Don spoke to them. Also. Russia is a fine country. It should be respected. Its borders should be respected, that's for sure. How would the U.S. feel if uh, Russia made a violent coup on the U.S. border? How about the speaking of English? Yeah, um, and uh, it was great. I mean, uh, at one point, there was a whole group of students uh, from a nearby university, don't know which one, uh, but they were from India, uh, and they walked by, they saw our banner, they gave us thumbs up, they agreed, uh, they took a number of our leaflets. Uh, there were a number of, of Russian folks who walked by who agreed with us. Um, there were even a number of Americans. Uh, there was one guy who walked by the table who was coming at things from kind of a libertarian perspective, and he said that he could see, um, oh, Emperor Tanky, thank you very much. He said that he could see that U.S. news was propaganda, uh, that it was telling only one side of the story, trying to demonize Russia. Uh, he could see through it. Um, it was it was quite an, an afternoon. Uh, there were some younger folks uh, who took the leaflets. Um, you know, there was a guy from Finland who came by. He didn't agree, uh, but he listened very carefully to what we had to say. Um, it was quite an afternoon. I was shocked. I was really shocked at how much agreement there was among the masses uh, who passed us. Average working class people uh, who thought, you know, yeah, they say our enemy is not Russia. Our enemy is Wall Street. I can agree with that. Uh, I want to hear what they had to say. I want to take one of their leaflets. Uh, a lot of African-American folks who agreed with us. A lot of younger white folks who, who agreed with us. A lot of people who didn't really know much about it. Um, but they were they were suspicious of what we've been hearing on the news. They wanted to learn more. I was really, really surprised. You know, when we went out there earlier, and thank you, thank you, happy Easter to you. Um, you know, when we went out there a couple of weeks ago for the demonstration that we had, there was a lot of hostility. You know, it took a, we had, we were out there with sound, we had to be bold. Um, but we were out there uh, this week and there was a lot of, a lot of interest in what we had to say. And you know, I, I really think it was really great that we did it. It was just Don and I. Uh, you know, we went, we got our table, uh, we got those books, uh, we got our leaflets, and uh, we put the sign in front of the table, and we just engaged with people for a few hours in Union Square. And it was a really good use of our time. It was really, really a great use of our time. Um, and I, I hope more people will do things like that. You know, I mean, we have leaflets now, uh, fact sheets about Ukraine and Russia, and, you know, we have... You know, you can obviously, if you want some of the Center for Political Innovation books, uh, you can very easily get your hands on them. I can, I can, you know, ship you some at print cost. So just let me know about that. And uh, it was really, you know, worth our time doing. I'm really, really glad that we did it. And I, I want to encourage more people to do this kind of outreach, uh, you know, and just kind of talk to people about all of this. Uh, because a lot of people, uh, a lot of people are suspicious of the government. And they see that gas price going higher and higher. And they hear about the cost of food and food rising um, and, and the costs. Um, and they hear about how the UN uh, you know, is talking about food shortages around the world. Joe Biden's warning about food shortages even in the United States. A lot of people aren't buying it. A lot of people aren't buying it. Um, you know, There's one guy who came by our table and 
He asked us, do you think Frank James is really the guy who shot up the subway? We had an interesting conversation about our suspicions about the case. Some other people came by and said, what do you think about, um, you know, thoughts on the new South Korean president? Um, okay, thoughts on uh, writing it down, writing it down. All right. Um, Other people came by and had their had their suspicions about vaccine mandates and other things. It was great to just be out on the street and engage with people and just talk to people. And, you know, it's New York City. It's Union Square. So you're going to have all kinds of different people, uh, all kinds of different perspectives. Uh, there was a woman doing yoga, you know, in, in, in Union Square Park behind us. She was kind of doing her yoga spiritual thing. Um, you know, there were some people that were, you know, a little drugged up, I think. Thank you for the super chat. I do appreciate it. You know, and it's Union Square, you're going to get that. But then there was a lot of people that were just walking by, they were interested. Uh, some Russian folks who were interested, um, you know, some, some you know, university folks. There was a couple of people from Latin America who took leaflets and were giving me thumbs up and were agreeing. Uh, you know, New York City is a very, very international city. There's a lot of people from a lot of different places. And outside the United States, and especially outside the NATO countries, uh, huge protests in France recently. Especially outside the NATO countries, there's a lot of people that, that are suspicious of the war propaganda coming from the United States. They don't buy it. They just don't buy it. Um, and so it was really good to be able to go out and engage. And I hope, you know, as it gets warmer, today was a little chilly, but as it gets warmer, we're going to do this more in New York City. We're going to be out on the streets. And I know, I know there's other people that are going to be in New York City. There's other people with Center for Political Innovation who are around in, in other areas. And we, we got to just keep engaging with people out on the streets. This internet stuff that we do, I love it. I live for it. I love all of you guys so much. I love all of you guys. You know that. You know that we are we are the best best of friends here, and this is our great pastime. But sometimes you got to go out and engage with people who wouldn't go looking for this. People that that wouldn't uh, wouldn't know anything about this. Wouldn't come for this channel. Uh, that's who we gotta we gotta engage with. And that's why the John Brown Volunteers and the work that they do is so awesome. I'm so excited to have them hit the streets in Chicago pretty soon to build for our Chicago conference. Uh, we're aiming for the end of May, confirmation coming soon. Uh, so excited about that. And I'm so excited um, about people around the country and students of Youth for a New America and all the work that they're doing. Uh, we're trying to raise awareness uh, out of the movement to the masses. And to the masses means engaging with people. You know, I, I go out on the subways all the time in New York City and I always see Jehovah's Witnesses and I see, you know, fundamental Baptists and I see Muslim groups sometimes, but you know, wouldn't it be great if I, I ran into a group of communists out there just spreading the revolutionary message? I don't know who that is. I don't know what that's about, Anthony. I, I don't know what this is. I don't. I haven't been following that case. Um, but yeah, um, you know, I mean, it's important to be out there and and spread the message. But there's a couple other things I wanted to talk about today. Um, the way this works, by the way, if you're new, um, I give my opening remarks. Uh, and after I give my opening remarks, um, after I give my opening remarks, um, you know, um, at that point, uh, then I will, I will do the roll call. I'll call people out names and locations. We'll do names and locations. I'll call people out. And then after that, um, from there, we will, uh, answer super chats for the rest of the night. That's how it's going to work. Um, so yeah, that'll be pretty cool. So, um, that, that's how we'll do things. So if you have something you want me to talk about in the second half of the show, shoot me a super chat and we will talk about it. Um, and that's how it's going to work here. But, you know, I, I did want to use my opening remarks to talk about a few different things. Um, but there you go. 
what literature do you think is best to start with when starting a local reading group in a college town? Love CPI's work. Very good question, Heather. What lit to start with? Having a reading group in a college town. Writing it down. Very good question, Heather. Uh, much appreciated. That's a question that we'll answer for sure in the second half of the program. So I wanted to talk about some other things. I wanted to just highlight the fact that we did outreach. And if you do outreach, by the way, and you were able to film some of that, right? I mean, obviously, you don't want to stand there and film everyone who ever comes by your table. But if you're able to do some outreach on your own, out in the streets, spreading the revolutionary message, promoting anti-imperialism, and you're able to film it, you can send me the video. I will show it on these streams because I want people to see what street outreach is like. I want people to see how important, how really, really important, um, you know, street outreach outreach can be um, and how engaging with people with an anti-imperialist message, uh, how important it, it really is. So, um, so yeah, if you want to, if you want to, um, if you want to do outreach, um, you know, uh, and, and you're able to send me some video of your, your literature table or your leafleting, please send it my way and we'll show it on these streams. Thoughts on third world just to argue socialists aren't city builders because <laughs> socialists aren't city builders because cities create exploitation. <laughs> That's a new one on me. I never heard that one. Um, but there you go. There you go. Great stuff. Great stuff. So um, I also wanted to mention, so April 15th, April 15th. We know it as tax day in the United States. That is the day that your tax return is due uh, in the United States. April 15th is tax day. Uh, in another part of the world, MAGA folks, increasingly anti-imperialists, they've announced NATO now, right? Another part of the world, April 15th, has a very, very, very different connotation. Um, uh, I don't know if anyone watching knows exactly what I'm about to say, but in one particular country, I guess in, in one particular part of one particular country, April 15th is a really, really important day. It is a national holiday, um, and it's a day of wild celebrations. And, uh, uh, and, uh, I guess I'm going to show you a video of what happened this year, just like every year on April 15th. Uh, this took place April 15th. Um, this is what happened. <목소리도> 
가는 검덕의 산악협고 도시와 여공당 만세소리 사회주의 만세소리는 Yeah, um, April 15th is the birthday of Kim Il-sung, the founder of the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. And so they had a very big parade uh, in North Korea uh, to honor Kim Il-sung. And, you know, I think it's really important to talk about North Korea because there is so much blatant lying and misrepresentation of North Korea and what they stand for. Um, so I thought for my opening remarks tonight, in honor of, of the Day of the Sun, of Kim Il-sung's birthday, I would just kind of go over the facts, what you don't know about North Korea. Because, again, we're told that North Korea is hell on earth, that everyone there is starving and miserable and dead. And, but they got that woman, you know me, Park, who says they have to push the trains, the trains don't work in North Korea, and all kinds of crazy crazy nonsense. But uh, I just thought I'd kind of go over the basics of the Korean Revolution. So, you know, Korea was colonized by Japan. Japan occupied Korea. um, And they occupied it for at the beginning of the 20th century. And they used the Korean people as slaves. Uh, They took a lot of Korean people to Japan to use them as slave labor. Uh, You know, horrendous things were done to Korean women. Uh, It was was really awful. I mean, the occupation of Korea, which was basically done with the support of the United States, uh, it was it was very, very horrendous. Um, and the Korean people were, were horrendously treated. And the beginning of the resistance to Japanese occupation of Korea, it started in the aftermath of World War One. Right? right after World War One, Woodrow Wilson was the U.S. president. And he gave a speech talking about self-determination, saying that every country has a right to self-determination. And a lot of people around the world really believed Woodrow Wilson, thought he meant it. They figured that's great. You know, a lot of people in the colonized countries of the world and, and in Africa and Asia and Latin America, a lot of people said, wow, Woodrow Wilson is talking about, you know, self-determination and the right of self-determination for countries. Maybe he means it. But then when they wrote the Treaty of Versailles and ended World War I, it became clear they didn't mean it. Right. And the, the parts of China that were, you know, had been owned by Germany and been, been you know, colonized and taken by Germany uh, were not returned to the Chinese people. Uh, you know, they weren't returned to China and, you know, Korea, uh, you know, Korea, you know, continued to be occupied by Japan. And Woodrow Wilson did not, you know, put pressure on Japan to withdraw from Korea, enabled, you know, Korea to continue occupying, uh, you know, in that way, enabled Japan to continue occupying and exploiting the Korean people. And so it was, I believe, in 1919, in the aftermath of World War I, uh, that you had the white robe movement. And the white robe movement on the Korean peninsula was the first uh, mass act, uh, mass day of resistance to the Japanese occupiers of Korea. And it was pacifist, uh, it was nonviolent, and it was Christian-led. And it was a lot of Christian ministers, Catholic priests and nuns, Protestants, and and other folks, you know, they protested the Japanese occupation of Korea with peaceful demonstrations. And they wore white robes. They wore white robes to show that they were peaceful, 
to show that they were coming only with uh, religious intent, uh, you know, and they marched with white robes on. Thousands and thousands of Korean people marched against the Japanese occupation of their of their homeland wearing white robes. And the response of the Japanese occupiers was to kill hundreds of them, just gun them down in the streets, just gun them down in mass. But that wasn't enough, right? After they gunned them down in mass, they, they were angry that the Korean people had protested. So they, they lit a couple schools on fire. Schools, school children who had nothing to do with the protests, uh, you know, just, just to, just to you know, punish the Korean people for the fact that some of them had marched against the Japanese occupiers with white robes. They lit a few schools on fire. Uh, it was just a horrendous massacre. I mean, slaughtering hundreds of Korean people for daring to have a peaceful protest movement against Japanese occupation, against the white robe protests. Uh, against the white robe protests, they just slaughtered thousands of people. It was, it was really awful. Um, so, you know, the Korean people, obviously it was made clear to them they couldn't organize peacefully against the Japanese occupiers. Um, but, you know, in China, uh, starting in the 1920s, you had a lot of influence on the part of the Soviet Union. And the Soviet Union opposed Japanese imperialism, the Japanese empire. The Soviet Union was aiding Chiang Kai-shek uh, and Dr. Sun Yat-sen in the Chinese Republic. Then later, you know, the Chiang Kai-shek turned against the communists. And so you had the formation of the People's Liberation Army uh, in China. The, the communist army was formed to fight against Chiang Kai-shek, which supported the Soviet Union. We started having Mao in China carving out liberated territory. So some of the Korean people that were fighting for their national liberation against, against Japan and the Japanese occupiers, they started getting military training from Mao uh, and from the Soviet Union. And so you started to have the formation of a, of a people's liberation army in, in Korea. Uh, and, you know, and, and there was a Korean resistance movement. And the hero of the Korean, uh, the Korean resistance movement, uh, who became like the Robin Hood, uh, was Kim Il-sung. Uh, and Kim Il-sung was not actually his name, all right? Kim Il-sung means Kim becomes the son. And that was like an outlaw name, right? It was like Billy the Kid or, uh, you know, Pretty Boy Floyd or whatever. It was his, like, it was his, his you know, nom de guerre, his, his name of war, his military name. He was... Kim becomes the son. It was like his 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 hero name. He was Robin Hood to these folks. He was he was a, a people's bandit, right? He was an outlaw who who fought for the people. Uh, and he, he was in the mountains and he had a revolutionary army. Uh, and he fought against uh, against the Japanese and he, you know robbed from the rich, gave to the poor, and he was kind of a hero. And there were songs about Kim Il Sung. Songs, folk tales, uh, you know, tall tales and legends. He was like the hero of the Korean people uh, because he was fighting against the Japanese occupiers. Um, and uh, it, was, it was very wild. And he was just kind of everybody knew about Kim Il-sung. Kim becomes the son. Uh, and he wasn't considered to be a communist. He was just considered to be an anti-Japanese uh, hero. You know, the Japanese called him a bandit. They had a price on his head. Uh, they wanted to arrest him, but the people would hide him in their homes and protect him. And he was just considered a hero. He was the people's outlaw, the people's bandit, the leader of the resistance. And they, they liked Kim Il-sung, right? Um, so, you know, World War II happens. Um, and as World War II happens, uh, you know, the Korean resistance is supporting China, is supporting the fight against Japan. Japan is aligned with the Nazis and aligned with the German uh, imperialists and, and the Italian fascists. And so, 
as the war is ending, uh, the Soviet Union liberated the northern half of the Korean Peninsula, right? Uh, and, and the northern half of the Korean Peninsula was, was liberated by Soviet troops. And the southern half of the Korean Peninsula was still occupied by Japan. And then when Japan's government fell, uh, you know, the United States set up the Republic of Korea. Uh, and so you had the Democratic People's Republic of Korea in the northern half of the Korean Peninsula. And then you had the Republic of Korea in the south. And the idea was that there was supposed to be uh, continent-wide, or I'm sorry, peninsula-wide elections on the Korean Peninsula, in which every party would be able to participate. Um, that was the idea. But the Republic of Korea, backed by the United States, made pretty clear that it wasn't going to allow elections for the whole continent, uh, for the whole peninsula. It wasn't going to allow all of Korea to have one election where every party could participate. They weren't going to allow it. Uh, Sigmund Rhee was the military strongman backed by the United States, uh, and he was somebody who had a history of aligning with the Japanese occupiers. And uh, he basically was becoming the military dictator. And at Cheju Island, uh, in Cheju Island, there was an uprising for democracy. Uh, this was an area that was a stronghold of, of communist sympathy and an anti-Japanese resistance. So Cheju Island, you had the people rise up and revolt uh, against, uh, against the, uh, the, the government in the South uh, that, that wasn't going to allow there to be free elections. Um, and in response to that, uh, you had the massacre at Jeju Island, where the Republic of Korea, backed by the United States, just massacred and slaughtered all these people uh, who, wanted, who wanted the right to vote. They wanted democracy. You know, Kim Il-sung and the Korean Workers' Party and the communists in, in North Korea didn't come to power by advocating violence. They advocated a peaceful transition. They said, you know what? World War II is over and there's a government in the South, and there's a government in the North, why don't we just have an election for the entire peninsula and let the people decide who they want to vote for? The communists will participate. The capitalists will participate. Let's just do it. They wanted a peaceful transition, but the imperialists wouldn't allow it. And in the South, not only did they not allow the people to vote and have a, a participation in a continent, uh, peninsula-wide election, but on top of that, um, and on top of that, uh, they, um, um, you know, at the same time, uh, they were slaughtering the people in the South. Um, let's write down a couple of these. All right. Tweet about, shared that tweet about Dugan, how liberals can't comprehend something. And you don't agree with, wound up on the Nazi list. Right. All right. Dugan wound up on the list. All right. And any thoughts on AAP and the new Punjab state government? Job state government. All right. So, you know, I actually wanted to read to you. Uh, this, this is, this is, you know, Kim Il Sung's selected works. This is volume one of the selected works of Kim Il Sung. Um, and I, this is an important book. You know, not everything in here is is as important as everything else, but this is really important because this, this is what I want to read to you. This is the twenty-five point platform of the Korean Workers' Party, right? This is, this is the platform that they took power on in North Korea. This is the platform through which they created the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. And this is what I want people to understand. Left origins of fascism and woke fascism today. All right.
This is what I want people to understand because, again, the Korean Workers' Party wanted to participate in elections for the entire peninsula. They weren't able to. And so in the northern part of the Korean peninsula, they established, you know, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. This was the government that was declared at, and, and it was declared. And this is, this is, I'm just going to read you. This is their platform, right? Now, I mean, a lot of these folks don't understand, you know, that, that communists, when they're building a united front, they put forward what are called transitional demands, right? Thank you, Andre. Much appreciated. Transitional demands, which are demands that don't seem very radical, but they challenge capitalist power. The Center for Political Innovation, we have our four-point plan that we put forward. And there have been some people who attack that, and they say, well, that's not communism. That's not dictatorship of the proletariat. Well, that's not how communists come to power. They don't come to power by advocating full-on communism or, you know, or dictatorship of the proletariat. They come to power by putting forward a program that is very sensible. It seems very sensible to most people, but challenges capitalist power. These are called transitional demands or a transitional program. In Russia, they came to power peace, land, and bread. Uh, in, in, in China, they came to power you know, land to the peasantry, defeat the Japanese invaders. Well, this is, how, this is the platform that the Korean Workers' Party came to power on. This is what they promised the people in order to come to power and build the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. This is, I'm reading it to you. This is a book printed in North Korea, right? This is, this is a North Korean printed book. It's got Kim, Kim Il-sung's face, you know, in the front of it, printed in North Korea. This is from the horse's mouth. This is the platform the Korean Workers' Party took power on. As dear countrymen, brothers and sisters, allow me to speak on behalf of the Provisional People's Committee of North Korea about the platform of the future provisional government that will be set up. The USSR and U.S. Joint Commission established in the accordance with the decision of the Moscow Three Foreign Ministers Conference started its work in Seoul on the 20th of this month. The USSR-U.S. Joint Commission, whose meeting is being followed with expectations by all of the people of Korea, must work in the interest of the Korean people and must find a solution to the problem of establishing a unified provisional government which is earnestly demanded by the Korean people. The provisional government should be a genuine democratic government capable of fulfilling the desire of the entire, uh, the entire Korean people. We hold that the democratic government to be set up by us must, without fail, put into effect the following platform. This was the platform. This was their platform. Um, um, okay, someone's recommending a documentary about North Korea. Thank you, Peter. Shout out to you, Peter. Peter's awesome, by the way, folks. He's an awesome, awesome dude. Um, so this is this is the platform. I'm going to read you the platform. This is the platform. To thoroughly liquidate all remnants of Japanese imperialist rule from the political life of the Korean people. That's one. One, to thoroughly liquidate the remnants of Japanese imperialist rule from the political life of the people of Korea. Two, to wage an implacable struggle against reactionary and anti-democratic elements at home and strictly ban the activities of fascist, anti-democratic political parties and organizations. Three, grant the entire people freedom of speech, freedom of the press, freedom of assembly, and freedom of religion, and provide conditions for free activities of democratic political parties and trade unions, um, and trade unions, uh, and, um, and so peasant associations and other democratic social organizations. Four, 
to see to it that the entire Korean people have the right and duty to form people's committees, administrative organs responsible for all local affairs through universal, direct, and equal suffrage by secret ballot. Five, to grant equal rights to all citizens in political and economic life, irrespective of sex, religion, and property status. Six, to assert the inviolability of persons and their residents and protect by law the property of citizens and their private possessions. Seven, to abolish all laws and judicial organs which were in operation during the time of Japanese rule and still retain after effects and to elect the people's judicial organs on democratic principles and grant citizens equal rights. Eight, to develop industry, agriculture, transport, and trade for the enhancement of the people's welfare. Nine, to nationalize big enterprises, transport services, banks, mines, and forests. Does that sound familiar? Ten, to allow and encourage free activity in private handicrafts and trades. What? Free activity? That's not, you know, private handicrafts and trades. That's, he's allowing a market sector. Eleven, to confiscate the land belonging to the Japanese, the Japanese state, to the traders, and to the landlords who continue to rent out their land. Abolish the tenant system and distribute among the peasants, free of charge, all the confiscated land and making it their property. Confiscate, confiscate without compensation all irrigation facilities and place them under public control. Twelve, fix market prices for living necessities to combat speculators and usurers. Thirteen, to institute a system of uniform, equitable taxation and introduce a progressive income tax system. Fourteen. To introduce eight-hour workday for factory and office workers and fix a minimum wage. To prohibit the employment of children under 13 years of age and institute a six-hour workday for children 13 to 16 years old. Very, very, very interesting. Fifteen, set life insurance for factory and office workers and an insurance system for workers and enterprises. Sixteen. To introduce a system of universal compulsory education and widely increasing primary, secondary, and specialized schools and colleges to be run by the state. To reform the system of public education in line with the democratic state system. 17. To actively develop national culture, science, and the arts and to increase the number of theaters, libraries, radio broadcasting stations, and cinema houses. 18. To set up special schools on a wide scale for training the personnel necessary and required in state organs in all fields of the national economy. 19. To encourage scientists and artists in their work and give them assistance. 20. To increase the number of state-run hospitals and stamp out epidemics and provide free medical care to the poor. That's it. Those are the 20 points that the Korean Workers' Party took power on. Does that sound like full communism? Does it sound like dictatorship of the proletariat? Does that sound like abolishing private property? No. But those were 20 points that everybody in Korea could agree to, for the most part. Create a national health care service, free medical care for the poor, you know, give everyone freedom of religion and the right to vote, take the property of those who collaborated with the Japanese occupiers, build new universities, build a new school system, abolish child labor. Uh, you know, set up a minimum wage, control the prices of food and other necessary commodities so that people, people wouldn't get ripped off. These are not extreme, radical, violent points, but they were points that 
the Korean people could largely agree to. But they threaten the property of the capitalists, right? If you're taking the property of all the Japanese collaborators, you're telling the capitalists what what price they can sell goods for. You're not letting the free market do it. You're setting a minimum wage. You're set it. You're having an out eight hour workday. You're having the state build schools and hospitals and libraries. This is all very very radical. This is a program that, in and of itself, is not socialism. If you implemented these twenty points, they don't add up to socialism. But they're points that everyone was for and the capitalists were against, right? The private capitalists would not agree to this. And so by mobilizing the people around these demands, this is how the Korean Workers' Party came to power. Only when the above-mentioned fundamental requirements are fulfilled will the Korean people come to enjoy genuine freedom and political rights, and will their welfare be promoted and our country complete, uh, achieve complete independence. Only a government capable of meeting the aforementioned requirements will become a genuinely democratic government and will enjoy the support of the entire people. The USSR-US Joint Commission should contribute to the founding of the Korean Democratic Provisional Government capable of meeting these demands of the Korean people. I call upon the entire Korean people and the champions of the freedom and independence of our country to devote all their energies to building an independent, sovereign, and democratic state. Long live democratic independence and sovereignty, and long live the liberated people of Korea. That is the platform. That's the radio speech by Kim Il-sung, March 23rd, 1946. That is the platform that they took power on. That is a transitional demand. That is a transitional program. This is the Korean Workers' Party a revolutionary party that was founded by guerrilla fighters who fought the Japanese invaders. That's the platform they took power on. How could you be against it? If you're, imagine you're on the Korean Peninsula. If you're on the Korean Peninsula and, and you're a worker or you're a peasant and someone says, hey, we want to have schools where your children can learn to read. Would you be against it or would you be for it? Someone comes along and they say, we want to build a new medical system for the country and give free medical care to poor people. Would you be against it or would you be for it? Someone came along and they said, we want to confiscate the land from all the people that, you know, collaborated with the Japanese occupiers and redistribute it to us, the Korean people. Would you be against it or would you be for it? There's no way you could be against this program. We want to regulate the price of food and make sure that you can afford food and you don't have a situation like many people experienced during the war and during the, the famines before where people couldn't afford to buy food. We're going to regulate the price of food. Would you be against that? Or would you be for it? This is a real transitional demand. It's a transitional demand that you could mobilize the entire population around. There's people that would vote for that that probably don't believe in Marxism, don't believe in communism, never read a single word that Lenin ever wrote, have no idea the difference between capitalism and socialism. But Kim Il-sung came along and he said, we want to regulate the price of food. We want to, we want to give everyone the right to vote. We want to build a medical system and build new schools, and we want to confiscate the property of the Japanese collaborators. We want to ensure that everyone has the right to, uh, to form a labor union, and we want to set up people's committees to involve people in the political process. Um, what's okay, okay, all right, differentiates. All right. And that's, that's, uh, that's the platform they took power on. And it's a great platform. And 
this is what I want people to understand. This is how serious revolutionaries operate. They build a platform or a program that people can rally around. And that's what the, the North Korean, the Korean Workers' Party did. Now, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea was declared. Um, okay. All right. All right. Okay. Um, all right. Writing it down. All right. Um, and the Democratic People's Republic of Korea was declared. Um, and their platform, you know, was was put forward. Um, and it was made clear in the South that they would not allow peninsula-wide elections. And then when the people of Cheju Island, you know, protested, demanding the right of a democratic election, they slaughtered them. Uh, and other activists in South Korea uh, who, who were demanding, you know, the right to form unions and such were being suppressed. So in response to that, in response to that, North Korea made the decision. They said, we are going to we are going to move in and liberate our comrades, right? We're going to unify our country. I, it, 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 it really annoys me because the way they teach the history of the Korean War in the United States, the way they teach the history is they always say, North Korea invaded the South. You ever heard this? North Korea invaded the South. Folks, there's only one Korea. North Korea and South Korea only exist because after World War II, Half of northern of, of, of Korea was liberated by Soviet troops, and the other half remained under Japanese occupation until they surrendered. There is not two Korean peoples. There is one Korean nation, all right? One language, one culture, one heritage. There's one Korean people. There's only one Korean people. So saying the North invaded the South is an oxymoron. What happened was that, that they went in to help their comrades. They saw that a government backed up by the United States that existed in the southern half of their country that controlled, that was on their territory, was killing their fellow Korean people. So they moved in to protect their, their about. They were moving in to protect their comrades in the southern half of the Korean Peninsula. So in response to, you know, the North Koreans, you know, the, I shouldn't say the North Koreans, but the Koreans moving in to protect their comrades from the U.S.-backed military dictatorship in the South. In response to that, you had the United States move in and you had the Korean War. And the Korean War was one of the ugliest wars in history. Four million people died. Uh, the USA bombed every single building in the northern half of the Korean Peninsula above one story tall. Every single building was bombed. And they bombed the, the dikes uh, and the dams and flooded civilian areas and caused crop failures so people starved to death. Um, and they, they bombed schools and they bombed hospitals. And what the USA did during the Korean War was absolutely horrendous. I mean, it was a brutal, brutal crime. Four million people killed in North Korea. I mean, it was, it was evil what the United States was doing. I mean, it was horrendous. The Korean War was horrendous. And there were thousands of American GIs who were taken you know, prisoner. And in the prisoner of war camps, they confessed. They signed confessions and read confessions over the radio, confessing to having committed war crimes. Um, there's a documentary uh, that BBC created about the Korean War. It's called The Unknown War. And they refused to show it on American television because it, they thought American audiences just couldn't handle it. 
American audiences just couldn't handle the truth about what U.S. imperialism did to the Korean people. It was just too too much for American audiences to handle. Um, you know, that's that's you know the truth. I mean, you look into the details of all the massacres that were carried out by U.S. troops on the Korean Peninsula. All the all the bombings, all the torture, all the rape. I mean, what the U.S. imperialists and the South Korean puppets did uh, during the Korean War was horrendous. Um, and the reason that the USA was driven out uh, of North Korea uh, was because China came in. You know, it was like it was kind of like the, um, you know, like like sometimes in those old movies, uh, you know, at the end of the movie of the John Wayne cowboy movie, uh, the the soldier, the army of soldiers rides rides in, the cavalry rides in and rescues them at the end of the movie. That's what happened. The the Chinese Communist Party and Mao they said we can't sit back, we cannot sit back and hold back. Uh, and so, in response to uh, you know all of all of what was going on, the the Chinese People's Liberation Army moved in, and Mao sent his own son into battle. Many people don't know this. Mao's own son died in North Korea, died on the battlefield in Korea. Mao Zedong's own son died in Korea, um, and they they rode in, and and the United States was was so angry with China for doing that. General Douglas MacArthur. Uh, who was the U.S. Army general, without asking Harry Truman the president's permission, he threatened to nuke China and North Korea. He had fifth. He said he was going to drop fifteen atomic bombs on China and on North Korea. Fifteen atomic bombs. Can you believe that? He threatened to nuke them. Threatened to nuke to nuke them. And Harry Truman said, "I'm the president. You're not. You're not allowed to do that." So Harry Truman ended up firing him for doing that because you can't threaten to nuke somebody. Um, you can't threaten to nuke somebody without the per permission of the president. Um, but uh, but ultimately, China came in and stood with the Korean people, and the the U.S. imperialists were driven back to the 38th parallel to that border. And there was an armistice that was signed, and there was supposed to be a treaty that was signed afterwards. There was going to be a peace treaty. However, uh, that peace treaty was never signed. Um, so they, they had an armistice. They were supposed to meet and sign a treaty, but the USA never signed the treaty. So even still to this day, the USA and North Korea are technically at war with each other. Right? Um, that's why there's no North Korean, um, there's no North Korean embassy in the United States. There's no North Korean consulate in the United States. The USA does not recognize the government of North Korea. It doesn't recognize them. Um, it recognizes the government of the South as if they're the government of the entire Korean Peninsula. So, I mean, that's what, and the North Korean people, they endured that. And I mean, when you have a war where 4 million people die on your soil in a country that's, its population is not huge, uh, you know, they, everybody remembers that. Everybody remembers that. Um, you know, everybody remembers that. And I mean, it just had a huge impact. So then after the war, uh, North Korea, um, they, they started industrializing. And, you know, the Soviet Union came to their aid. The Soviet Union was their ally. And you, you might have a hard time believing this, but I am going to pull up the quote for you because it's so hard for many people to believe this. But I, I, have, to, I have to quote this because it is just so hard. Um, you know, for people to even understand this because it's just more than, than they can even comprehend. But, um, but the Soviet Union started helping North Korea build, build up their aid 
you know, started helping them build up their aid. Um, and I'm going to pull up. This is from BBC. This is what BBC wrote. This is not what I wrote. This is not what the Daily Worker or the Communist News wrote. I'm going to read you what BBC um, wrote about, about what happened during those years. Because it gets so covered up. It gets so covered up. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to talk about it. So let me just pull up the quote because it needs to be said. Needs to be said because it gets you know people people don't want to hear this people people want to pretend it's not true but this is this is what was written by BBC about what went on after the Korean War when the Soviet Union moved in and started helping the Korean people build themselves up and this is what happened right this is what happened right this is from BBC this is from BBC, the date of the article, I'll even pull up the BBC News article. If you don't believe me, I'll put it in the chat, right? Because people, I have heard my whole life, no one ever believes this when I point it out. I'm going to put the link to the BBC article in the chat. And I'm going to read to you from the BBC article. I just dropped it in the chat, right? This is a BBC article dated Tuesday, uh, Tuesday, the 26th of August, 2008. This is what they wrote. At one time, North Korea's centrally planned economy seemed to work well. Indeed, in the initial years after the creation of North Korea following World War II, with spectacular results, the mass mobilization of the population, along with Soviet and technical assistance and financial aid, resulted in annual economic growth rates estimated to have reached 20%, even 30%, in the years following the devastating 1950-1953 Korean War. As late as the 1970s, South Korea languished in the shadow of the economic miracle north of the border. Did you hear that? Economic miracle. Economic miracle. And Chaya said it right. They industrialized faster than South Korea. The Soviet Union went in there and they electrified it. They brought electricity to the whole country. Uh, they built hospitals across the whole country. They built schools. No one ever talks about this, that they had an, an economic miracle in the 60s and 70s in, in North Korea, where with socialist central planning, they mobilized the population. They wiped out illiteracy. They brought medical care to the whole population. They, they built steel mills and power plants, and they were on the move. And, and no one ever talks about this. That North Korea had a really good economy in the 60s and 70s. They, they had really rapid economic growth. You know, when we talk about economic growth rates of 20%, even 30%, that is huge. That is a huge rate of economic growth. That's it's massive, right? And I mean, what they were able to do in terms of raising living standards and raising the life expectancy on the Korean Peninsula, that, that's a big, big deal, right? And people, people all just forget this. this you know, this, we hear this communism doesn't work. Everyone's been poor and starving and in North Korea, ever since communism ever came in there, that's not what happened. They had a very, very strong economy. But then what happened was the Soviet Union fell. And the fall of the Soviet Union took a devastating toll. And then, you know, the U.S. imperialists started using food as a weapon of war. Because little known fact is that the northern half of the Korean Peninsula is where all the mountains are. The farmland in North Korea, or in, the farmland in Korea is in the south. There's not much farmland in the north. That's, it's a mountainous, it's the mountainous part of the Korean Peninsula. They got a lot of coal, right? They can make a lot of steel, uh, you know, but in terms, of, uh, in terms of farmland, they don't have very much farmland. Now, 
they have an agricultural system and they were food self-sufficient in the 80s, but they needed petroleum. And so after the Soviet Union fell, the USA used the petrodollar to devastate North Korea's economy, to just devastate their economy, um, and used food as a weapon of war. And in the 90s, the 1990s, they call it the arduous march. And again, you had mass deaths, millions of people dying in Korea because of malnutrition, because the US imperialists wouldn't let the North Korean people eat. And they were using food as a weapon of war. And with their sanctions and their, their threats, they were hoping that they could starve out the Korean people. It's utterly horrendous what they were doing. Any other government on earth would have collapsed under such pressure, right? When, when you cut off a country's oil supply, they had no oil coming in and no one could buy their coal and they couldn't get any dollars and they were just you know, devastated. And it was in that context, that's why they got nuclear weapons. They started saying, okay, you know, it's like we got starvation going on here. The USA is threatening us. We need to get nuclear weapons. So they started moving to get nuclear weapons. And then Bill Clinton moved in and said, don't get nuclear weapons. Don't get nuclear weapons. In exchange for not getting nuclear weapons, we're going to give you a bunch of heating gas and we're going to give you a bunch of food. And they, Bill Clinton made this promise to the Korean people that if you don't get nuclear weapons, we'll give you a whole lot of stuff. And so the North Koreans said, okay, if you will give us all this heating gas and you'll give us all this food and you'll help us get peaceful nuclear energy, all right, that's a deal. And the USA gave them a little bit of aid. And then Congress wouldn't fund it. Congress wouldn't fund the deal. They said, oh, no, we're not going to fund it. So as a result of that, Congress wouldn't fund the deal. So North Korea is like, wait, you promised us that in exchange for not getting nuclear weapons, you would give us food, you would give us heat, and you're not doing it. And our people need that. And we're starving here. And then after 9-11, George W. Bush gave his infamous axis of evil speech, his infamous axis of evil speech, where he named three countries, Iraq, of Saddam, you know, the Ba'athist government of Iraq, Iran, the Islamic Republic of Iran, and North Korea. He called them the axis of evil. Three countries that, you know, Iraq and Iran hated each other, you know, and in North Korea, it was on the other side of the world, but oh, they were the axis of evil. And in response to being called the axis of evil and not getting the aid they promised, North Korea went ahead and got nuclear weapons. And they got nuclear weapons. And that's why North Korea has nuclear weapons. And they're going to give them up eventually. But right, they're only going to give them up when they're convinced the USA is not going to invade them and that Russia and China will protect them from a U.S. invasion. And that's why North Korea has no nuclear weapons. And no one ever talks about this. No one talks about this, right? That North Korea, you know, was promised a whole lot of food and a whole lot of heating gas and petroleum in exchange for not getting nuclear weapons. Um, you know, uh, in exchange for not getting nuclear weapons, they were promised these things. Um, and uh, that they got nuclear weapons after these things were not delivered. That's not been talked about. But one of the most untold stories about the Korean people, uh, you know, uh, about North Korea, one of the most untold stories um, is their support for the Black Liberation Movement. Many people don't realize this, but North Korea had a really close relationship with the Black Panthers. The Black Panther Party, uh, you know, for self-defense, Huey Newton, Bobby Seale, Eldridge Cleaver, um, you know, those folks really admired North Korea, so much so that Eldridge Cleaver lived in North Korea for a really long time. Um, you know, North Korea loved, uh, I'm sorry, the, the, the Black Panthers loved all the socialist countries. They loved China. They waved Mao's Red Book. They loved the Soviet Union. Um, 
But uh, but North Korea and the Black Panthers had a very special relationship. They just had a very special relationship. And, um, you know, if you read the Black Panther newspaper, that was apparent. They had pictures of Kim Il-sung, articles by Kim Il-sung in their newspaper, something about the way they emphasized the Korean people's struggle for national liberation. Hit home with the fact that, that most of the Black Panthers had, were, were people who had come out of black liberation. In Mumia Abu-Jamal's book, We Want Freedom, A Life in the Black Panther Party, he talks about how in a lot of ways the, Bla the, the Black Panthers were a Malcolmist party. Uh, they were a party inspired by Malcolm X uh, more than anything. Um, and so the, the national liberation struggle of the Korean people was very important. Um, and, and the support that North Korea gave to the Black Panthers. I mean, it was, you know, it's pretty clear they gave them some financial support. They gave them money. Um, they gave them training. Uh, Black Panthers went over to North Korea to get political and educational training. Uh, you know, the North Koreans were heavily involved in supporting the Black Panthers. Um, and that's a good thing. Um, and I actually, Kathleen Cleaver, the wife of Eldridge Cleaver, this is an interview she gave in 1972, where she talks about, about the international relationships that the Black Panthers had. And I, I thought it was particularly important to play. She touches on their relationship with North Korea, but she talks also about, about some other developments that happened at that time and how they weakened the Black Panthers' international relationships. So this is Kathleen Cleaver. They were never, uh, how I'd say, we were never endorsed and given office and recognition and full uh, freedom to operate as a liberation movement until 1970. In fact, on the 13th of September, 1970, when our uh, office was officially opened in Algeria. And uh, I think that on the international level, we did something that had never been done before. And, and in fact, the opening of that uh, office in Algiers represented a very historical event in the sense this is the first time in the history of our struggle where any other government has even recognized that we were engaged in a liberation struggle against these uh, same forces of colonialism, imperialism, and racism as the other liberation movements were, and that any government outs outside of this country had recognized uh, this as a legitimate struggle. And this is very important. If you remember during the career of Malcolm X, he did travel through Africa. He did travel in uh, North Africa, and he did speak at the OAU uh, meeting, but it was much le much more of like uh, investigative, informative thing. And he did expound a position, but it was never concretized. And in the work of the international section, you see this whole analysis concretized and put into motion. This was in uh, the period of from 1969 to 19, uh, up till now. But what's happened is that, whereas in 1969 and 1970, it was a very positive and very powerful thing uh, that uh, we're able to set in motion on the international level and uh, through many uh, different types of activities. One of the most outstanding was the uh, visit of the uh, anti American people's anti-imperialist delegation to North Korea, China, and North Vietnam in the summer of 1970. Another activity was the um, visit of uh, a delegation of the international section of the Black Panther Party from uh, Algiers with uh, members from other areas uh, to the People's Republic of the Congo, which is very, very important to us and, and our struggle, we felt. And uh, the ability to organize uh, among the black GIs who are uh, active and uh, struggling in West Germany. We have a tremendously in uh, West Germany. 
and all of these things were possible uh, during that period of time. However, now the political climate on the international level has altered so tremendously that uh, is not uh, it's not possible to function on that level. In fact, uh, many of the uh, politics that were represented by governments uh, that we were able to visit and to have negoti negotiations with during that period of time have changed. The personnel have changed through either attempted coups or right-wing splits or whatever. The same phenomenon that you see going on everywhere. The visit of Nixon to uh, the People's Republic of China was a tremendous setback to the entire international, international struggle of um, revolutionary struggle, liberation struggles, whatever, because uh, here people saw that the, you know, like the highest level of power and revolutionary fervor in the third world, you know, had uh, extended its hospitality, hospitality to the, uh, you know, <laughs> number one enemy of all the struggling peoples in the world. And, and really now, uh, you, when you look at the situation of the Vietnamese, they're being increasingly isolated and uh, increasingly uh, stabbed in the back by their allies in the socialist camp. Uh, and also the Palestinians uh, being isolated and stabbed in the back by their former allies and all over the world, wherever you find revolutionary forces, you find a conflict, a confrontation, a suppression of them by their own government, or their own people, like the, uh, the split that went down in the Congolese Workers' Party in the People's Republic of Congo, and the power struggle that took place in the People's Republic of China, which Lian Pao has been uh, named the Black Sheep of. But I think everyone can see now that there's a profound difference in the politics articulated in the past by Lian Pao and those politics being implemented in the present by Chu and Lai. And uh, these, are, these are the types of problems in this, in, in this, type, of, um, in this type of atmosphere that uh, our international work has been carried out. And as that alters more and more in favor of imperialist powers represented by the United States or by... Uh, social imperialism. Now, that's really important. What Kathleen Cleaver just said in that clip was that, you know, when Nixon went to China in 1972 and China started saying that the Soviet Union was the main danger to the people of the world, um, that was a really big setback for the Black Panthers because a lot of the governments around the world that had been willing to support the Black Panthers were now caught up in this situation where they were kind of getting friendly to the United States. And this was a strategy uh, that the U.S. imperialists uh, had, had put forward, right, with Henry Kissinger and Zbigniew Brzezinski manipulating communists against each other, right, and courting China as an ally against the Soviet Union. And it led to a split in the Congo Workers' Party that she talked about, um, and it, it, it led to the Vietnamese getting less support because China wasn't supporting them, uh, but, but the Soviet Union was. China's aid... Uh, you, know, you know, significantly decreased to the Vietnamese, um, and that, that, that this strategy of splitting the socialist movement, um, it was a big setback for revolutionary forces around the world. So I wanted to talk about that because I just thought that was really fascinating. And she's talking about how, you know, North Korea, they sent a delegation to North Korea, they sent a delegation to Vietnam, they sent a delegation to, to China. Um, but, but that 
at that moment where China, you know, China was coming under the leadership of the Gang of Four, this ultra leftist clique, uh, after the fall of Lin Biao, she calls him Lin Pao. Uh, because it's spelled with a P. It was spelled with a P back then. But she's, she's talking about Lin Biao. Um, and she talks about how the fall of Lin Biao signified China moving in a less revolutionary direction. What well, was it signified China's foreign policy changing, right? China's foreign policy was shifting uh, toward aligning with the United States against the Soviet Union by to arguing that the, 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 the Soviet Union uh, was the main danger to the people of the world, uh, to arguing that... Um, that, uh, that, that there was the three worlds theory, et cetera. And this is how the imperialists won the Cold War is by manipulating communists against each other. Um, and, you know, you had the rise of Euro communism and all of that. And that, that it was this manipulation of our movement. And she's talking in 1972, Kathleen Cleaver in that interview is talking about how it affected, um, you know, it affected um, uh, the, the, the revolutionary movement. So I wanted to mention that, but I wanted to show you, you know, I mean, I have got a couple other books, you know, the fact that I've been able to interact with North Korea, you know, I've got, I've got, I just showed you, I read to you from the Selected Works of Kim Il-sung, volume, volume one. I've got the Selected Works of Kim Il-sung, volume three, um, you know, Kim Il-sung, Selected Works, volume three, uh, you know, this is good stuff. This is from my bookshelf. You all love my bookshelf, right? We all love my bookshelf. So, and this is the history and activities of Kim Il-sung. Uh, this is when I went to the World Festival of Youth and Students. Um, you know, they actually gave us a number of books because, you know, there weren't very many English-speaking countries there. But they, they gave us, you know, Kim Il-sung. This is a biography of Kim Il-sung, the history and revolutionary activities of Kim Il-sung. Il I actually wanted to show you one of the pictures in here. I believe it's a, one of the graphics in this book, if I can find it. Maybe it's in another book that I've got. There's a graphic that is just awesome. Um, maybe I... I can't find it. Okay, no, I'm sorry. I must have had the wrong book in mind. But, you know, other than, uh, you know, there's that. Now, this is also quite interesting. Now, this book is not printed in North Korea. This was printed by the Guardian newspaper, which was a communist newspaper. And they printed a three-volume biography of Kim Il-sung. Um, and uh, so I have it here, uh, this three-volume biography of Kim Il-sung printed by the Guardian, uh, by Bak Bong. Uh, you know, and it's got pictures of Kim Il-sung and it's got, you know, paintings and, and such. And it's, it's actually like a, a narrative of Kim Il-sung's life. I uh, thought I'd share that with you. And then I also wanted to mention, this is actually, this is really a treasure here. So this is a biography of, uh, of, of Kim Il-sung's wife, uh, Kim Jong-il's uh, Jong mother and Kim Jong-un's grandmother. Uh, and she is now a national hero of North Korea. Um, the immortal revolutionary woman, uh, and and uh, it's about her her leadership of the Korean people, um, and uh, you know Pak Jung Suk um, or Kim Jong Suk, uh, this Kim Jong Suk, right? Um, and it's it's her her biography, and it's it's quite neat. It's it's a fun book. Um, you know, she talks about about her role, the immortal revolutionary woman. I wanted to share that as well. Um, and this was this was also a gift that I received at the World Festival of Youth and Students. Um, it, I mean, it's just really, really great. I don't know. I, I've told this story before on these streams, but I will tell it one last time. Um, one of the most amazing and exhilarating moments of my life was being in Quito, Ecuador in 2013 at the airport. I was at the airport in Quito, Ecuador for the World Festival of Youth and Students, this, na this international communist youth gathering. And I was in the airport and, you know, the airplanes are coming and there's a delegation of young people from Greece and there's a delegation of young people from China 
there's a delegation of young people from from France and from Italy and from Russia and from from Vietnam and from Angola and from South Africa and they're they're moving us all towards this special section of the airport they've got set aside for people that are there for the um, for the World Festival of Youth and Students um, you know and you know you didn't need a visa to enter the country or anything you could just you know you were just there and they they were moving all of us there and then they were busing us to where the festival was we were kind of waiting to be transported to the festival so we're waiting in the airport and we're just sitting there and we're waiting in the airport we got our communist t-shirts on we're talking with some of the communists from belgium and some of the communists from britain and and you know trading books and newspapers it's very exciting so then you know everyone starts whispering around the airport that the north korean plane had arrived the plane from north korea had arrived and uh the airport suddenly grew silent grew silent and then suddenly the door opens and in walk the north korean delegation and the men are wearing suits and the women are wearing traditional korean gowns and they are like marching in formation into the airport and they're marching in, you know, this North Korean delegation is marching into the Quito, Ecuador airport. And this whole room, this whole, you know, area in the airport is so silent. We're all just dead silent as we're watching these people march in in like perfect formation. It's hard for me to say this without crying. I, I just get so emotional when I think about this. But the whole airport's silent. And then after a few minutes of silence, watching them like march in in formation. Somebody started applauding. And then some other people started applauding. And pretty soon, this whole airport full of people were applauding and cheering, cheering for the North Koreans, and just applauding and cheering for the North Koreans, and screaming in admiration of the North Koreans. And, and I thought in that moment, oh my God, I am in the right place. I am in the right place. These are my people. These are communists. These are anti-imperialists. These are revolutionaries. I am in an airport full of people and we are applauding and screaming in adoration and cheering for the North Koreans. Uh, it was epic. It was an epic moment. It was just an epic moment that I will never forget. Um, you know, and I think about how many people the Koreans lost during the Korean War, how many Korean people were slaughtered by the U.S. imperialists. And I think about, um, you know, about all that they've endured, you know, all you know, Kim Il-sung in the mountains and, and the Korean War and that arduous march. And, and I, at that moment, I'm like, these are my people. This is where I belong. I'm a communist. I am a communist till the end. I am an anti-imperialist. I am with the people of the world against Wall Street and the Pentagon and the internationalist bankers. And, and I, oh man, it was an exhilarating moment. You had to be there. It was one of the most epic moments of my life. It was, was totally amazing. And you had to be there. And so, you know, I just wanted to, in honor of uh, Kim Il-sung's uh, birthday, uh, Kim Il-sung Day, uh, I just thought I would share all of that. Because, again, there's, we only get one side of the story. The only side of the story we ever get about North Korea is, oh, it's an authoritarian, brutal society, blah, 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 blah. It's like they don't get that this is a people that have been fighting. They fought against Japan. They fought against the USA in the Korean War. They built themselves up from nothing. They're standing strong. They defended themselves with nuclear weapons. They supported the Black Panthers. These are revolutionary people. These are, this is a revolutionary people uh, that have made great sacrifices that, yes, life, life is difficult in North Korea. You bet it is. 
Uh, and you bet that they have ironclad discipline. They have ironclad discipline in North Korea. You can bet they have ironclad discipline. You can bet that it's not uh, it's not a you know a cakewalk. But this these are revolutionary people. You know Senegal, the African country of Senegal, to celebrate their independence, they built this big statue, um, and it's uh, it's a beautiful statue. And they hired North Korea to make it. I don't know if you know this. They hired North Korea to build the statue of Senegali independence. Go and look it up. This statue, it's beautiful. Just this beautiful statue. Uh, for the independence of the African country of Senegal. Um, and also uh, in Zimbabwe, uh, when Robert Mugabe was, was leading Zimbabwe, his bodyguards were North Koreans. I don't know if you know that, but the leader of, of Zimbabwe in that revolution, his bodyguards were from North Korea. Um, and, uh, you know, Libya, Gaddafi, uh, he had fighter pilots, uh, you know, who were in his air force uh, who were from North Korea. Um, and North Korea provided military training to the, the people of, of, of Libya. And, uh, you know, uh, the struggle against apartheid in South Africa, you know, North Korea gave support and weapons and training to the African National Congress and, and the, the African National Congress and, and Nelson Mandela and their struggle against apartheid. Uh, the, uh, the North Koreans have given weapons to the Palestinians. In fact, there's a number of Palestinians who live in North Korea. Uh, and, and, you know, you wouldn't know about that. But there's a number of Palestinians who have had to flee and, and have lived, live in North Korea. There's a number of African folks in North Korea. Like, you have no idea. There's all this propaganda trying to tell you that they're nationalists. They're like, you know, they're, they, yes, they love the Korean people. Yes, they're proud of their heritage, but they're internationalists. In every bone in their body, they are internationalists. And, you know, I, one thing I will never forget about being at the festival, World Festival of Youth and Students and my interactions with the North Koreans. You know, the North Koreans, they had this, like, the way it works is they, they give every like socialist country, Vietnam, Cuba, you know, they give them their own like tent that is where they can do their thing. So the North Koreans, they had their own tent, which is where they had workshops and presentations. Um, and so, you know, we spent a lot of time at the North Korean tent talking to the North Koreans and such. And, and uh, one thing that I, I do remember is that, uh, you know, in Korean culture, you don't hug. They are not into hugging. They are not into hugging, right? It's just not a thing they do in their culture. Koreans do not hug each other. That's just not a thing they do, right? It's interesting. You know, it's different cultures, right? Some cultures, they, they hug. Some cultures, they don't. You know, and, and like, you know, more Islamic countries, you hug, but it's the same sex, right? It's the same sex. You know, you don't, you don't hug on women. If you're a man, you don't hug on men. If you're a woman, but men hug on each other, women hug on each other, you know, and in, you know, and in Latin America, people are a little more affectionate and, and it just depends, right? There's just different ways of doing things. But in Korea, Korea, you don't hug. Um, you don't hug. But uh, one thing I will never forget is that, you know, they were coming to Latin America, coming to South America. Uh, you know, in South America, people do show a lot of affection. You know, men will like kiss, you know, women on the cheek. You know, there's kind of a, a greeting that way and such. So, um, you know, one thing I will remember is the Koreans, uh, they kind of, they've been trained to hug. And so they, they overdid it kind of. And so whenever you would meet a Korean, they would like hug you immediately. They just like throw their arms around you. Um, you know, you know, to make the point that that's, you know, that's what they do, right? Because they've been trained. I thought that was very, very sweet. Uh, it was, it was very, very sweet. And the other thing that I thought was, was very awesome was that, uh, the Koreans, they had a choir, like a, a, a choir that performed, you know, they had a singing choir and these singing, this, this choir that would perform at the plenaries of the, of the world festival and youth and students, it was from North Korea. Um, you know, not only did they sing Kore traditional Korean music, they sang Italian opera. 
And they also sang uh, Latin American revolutionary songs. They sang the people united will never be defeated. Um, and they sang, um, they sang, uh, you know, the Guantanamera, the Cuban revolutionary song. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that was just really amazing, you know? So, you know, we need to stand with North Korea against the U S imperialists. Uh, we need to, you know, you know, fight for a world where the Korean people can be reunified, the peaceful democratic reunification of the Korean peninsula. Um, yeah, that is what we absolutely need. Um, so I just wanted to say that. All right, folks. Let's do the roll call. Names and locations. Names and locations. I will call you out as I see you. Who's with us tonight? Names and locations. Names and locations. Who's with us? I'll call you out as I see you. Who's with us? Who is with us? I'll start doing the roll call. We're doing the roll call. Names and locations. Names and locations. Micah in Las Vegas. Nicola from Chicago. Quincy from Massachusetts, Las Vegas, Ryan in Oakland, Kieran from Soviet San Diego, Ben in Junction, Grand Junction, uh, uh, Chaya's in her new apartment, uh, Keaton is in Virginia, Keaton's in Virginia, we got Mike Martinez, shout out to you, Io Hillary in NYC, shout out to you, Io, right, we got Marcus in Kentucky, uh, Jose Gonzalez in Venezuela, we got Bob in Ireland, Springfield, Missouri, we got Robin in Costa Rica, Bob Troy in New York. We got uh, Justin Rivera in Riverside, California, Leslie in Australia, Clyde Bank, Jared from Virginia, Minnesota. Um, we got Mike Martinez out in Miami. Good, good friend and longtime friend and comrade of mine, Mike Martinez. We go way back. Mike is awesome. Love you, Mike. Love you, Mike. Shout out to you, brother Mike Martinez out, out in Miami. We got Jenny Lynn in Cincinnati, Ohio. We got Arturo from Alaska. We got Chad in Kansas City, Kansas. All right. All right. We got Michael in Santa Barbara. We got President Jesus in Los Angeles. We got Mike in North Carolina. We got Joey P and Logan to New Jersey. Michael in Santa Barbara. We got Chris in West Virginia, Giovanni in Tokyo, Japan. We got Char Char Darling in Nassau County. Shout out to you, Char Char Darling. Go check out, you know, Char Char Darling read a poem recently on our, uh, at, our, at our conference. The poem is up there. Awesome poem she, she read. Um, uh, great stuff, great stuff. We got Bill Frazier in Kansas City. We got Tony in Tasmania. We got the gentle laborer in the Twin Cities, Minnesota. Minnesota, Minnesota. Very, very good. We got... Uh, we got Tara Hoot, Gene from Tara Hoot, Indiana. We got Fort Worth, Texas. Robert in Hawaii, UP of Michigan, Dallas, Texas, Kansas City, uh, Mexico City, Gateshead, England, William Kane, Deborah Wilson, good friend of ours, Deborah Wilson. Shout out to you, Deborah. Always good to have you on here. Um, we got uh, Los Angeles, Ishmael Lopez, Yogi Fish, New York. Shout out to you, Mr. Yogi Fish. Elias from Wisconsin, Gabby Hernandez in Chicago, Marcus Miller in Kentucky. Um, we got Bob in Ireland, Bob in Ireland. Shout out to you, Bob in Ireland. St. David's from Bermuda. Wow, this is such an international stream. People from all over the world are on here, people from all walks of life. Uh, great stuff, great stuff. All righty, all righty. This is great stuff, great stuff. Oh, did I miss a super chat? I think I missed a super chat. Got to go back up to the super chat. That's how these things work. All right, rolling up to the super chat. We got Vegas. All right, shout out to Vegas. All right, Vegas, right? Vegas. Fall of Moloch is the name of Char Char Darling's poem. Uh, Marissa is with us. Marissa, we got Marissa. Um, we got Marissa 
what I'm trying to uh, Misty Noland. Um, uh, we got um, uh, we got Marissa Washington State. Um, very very good. Um, very 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 good. Um, Don D and NYC. Very good. Don D and NYC is with us. We showed clips of Don D as we were out doing outreach today. That was pretty cool. Oh, what other questions we got here? All right. All right. Good times, folks. Good times. Good times. All right. So now, um, you know, I will update you all on the disappearance of Gonzalo Lira soon. I'm sorry I hadn't followed that case as closely as I should, but I will. I promise we got Jamie Nix in St. Paul. Shout out to you, Jamie. We got Kendall in San Diego. Um, you know, I, I will give you an update uh, about Gonzalo Lira very soon. I can see it's a very important topic to a lot of people in the chat. So I will definitely give you an update on that case tomorrow. I will definitely give you an update on that case soon. All right. Thoughts on the new South Korean president. Let's see what happens, right? Again, there are many cases where there's a president who sounds awful and pro-imperialist who does good things. And there's many cases where there's a president who sounds like he might be anti-imperialist and doesn't do anything. We need to judge politicians by what they do, not by what they say. So let's see what happens, right? I, I always am hopeful. Um, you know, I think that the world, the way the world situation is moving with China, uh, with Russia, with, with South Korea and their economy and, and North Korea, I think that the world is moving towards um, peace on the Korean peninsula. That's the way the world is moving. However, you know, let's see how world events play out. There's a vicious right wing uh, in South Korea, you know, the vicious right wing. They had a, have a president. One of their recent presidents was the daughter of the brutal dictator Park Chung-hee. Um, and, uh, you know, and there's a vicious right wing, but then there's also kind of a progressive wing. So we're just going to have to see. Uh, we're just going to have to see. South Korea is not a free country, folks. Google their national security law. Right. Even read what even Human Rights Watch and other these, these other other, you know, groups, Amnesty International have said about their national security law. There's no Communist Party in South Korea. And that ain't because no one believes in communism. It's because if you set up a Communist Party, you go to jail for a really long time. There was a young man in South Korea who went to prison for tweeting. He tweeted on Twitter, uh, you know, something about Kim Il-sung and he was out of there. Right. Um, you know, and he, he was he was thrown in prison, you know, given a prison sentence. So. You know, there is, um, there are a lot of, uh, you know, there are a lot of people, uh, a lot of people uh, in South Korea who've been killed or arrested. And, you know, for the majority of time since the end of, of, the, uh, of the Second World War, South Korea has been a military dictatorship. Right now they have elections, but those elections aren't really free if you're not allowed to say you want peace with the, you know, your country folk. Uh, and, you know, and that's why these, um, these hearings in South Korea about human rights in the North are bullshit. These hearings, right? Um, because the people testifying there are testifying under duress. It is illegal in South Korea to say anything good about the North, to say anything criticizing military policy. So for the UN to convene human rights hearings about North Korea in South Korea, that's bullshit. It's inadmissible. It's absolutely inadmissible um, because uh, it's, it's absolutely inadmissible uh, because what, what, what people can say, uh, they can't say what they might really think. Right. I see Ellie Marino is on the Rockfin, by the way. Um, I see um, um, uh, they're asking about Julian Assange and we definitely stand against the extradition of Julian Assange. Uh, we, we are big supporters of Julian Assange at our conference. Uh, we started chanting free Julian Assange uh, at one point. Uh, so, yes, we are 
We are absolutely in support of Julian Assange. He should be freed immediately. He has not committed any crime. He's a hero for exposing the the crimes of the U.S. imperialists. Um, you know, so yeah, just just uh, wanted to get that out of the way. That was, I believe, that question was asked by who was asking that in the Rockfin. Anna Mares was asking about that. And we are we say free Julian Assange. We are big supporters of Julian Assange at the Center for Political Innovation. He should be freed immediately, along with all political prisoners: Mumia Abu Jamal, Leonard Peltier, uh, etc. So there you go. There you go. Um, there you go. Um, and wow, there's a lot of information on Gonzalo Lira. So I, I next stream, I will have a whole update on that case. So there you go. All right. Next question. Huge protests in France recently. I saw that because a lot of people are really angry about this runoff that they're going to have in France because Macron sucks and Le Pen sucks. No, Le Pen in some ways might be better. Um, the truth. Okay. Um, Le Pen might be better. Uh, Le Pen might be better in some ways than Macron, but in some ways she's worse, right? She appeals to anti-immigrant sentiments and jingoism, you know, and uh, she's associated with right-wing nationalism. Her father was like considered an extreme nationalist in France. And, you know, I mean, I, I would find it very hard to vote for Le Pen, but I would also find it very, very hard to vote for Macron because Macron is a defender of the status quo. And there's a lot of people in France, millions of people in France who voted for for Melanchon, uh, you know, um, and uh, they are not going to be able to get represented. They're going to have a runoff where they get to choose between uh, dumb and dumber or evil and eviler, um, you know, and uh, that's not good. That's not good at all. Um, and so, yeah, there was a big protest. Neither Macron uh, nor Le Pen uh, that happened today. Uh, and a lot of people, labor union activists, progressives were in the streets. Um, and they said, look, we, we, we're not happy about the way this is set up. We're not going to get an opportunity. We're not going to get an opportunity to, uh, to express ourselves in this upcoming election. I don't blame them. I don't blame them. Right. You know, I, in some ways Le Pen might be better, but in some ways Le Pen is awful. I mean, I mean, you know, in some ways Trump was better than Hillary Clinton, but in other ways he was awful. Right. I mean, he was awful appealing to anti-immigrant bigotry, supporting the police and against, against, uh, the protests against police brutality and and anti-Islamic sentiments. And Trump was awful in a lot of ways. He murdered Qasem Soleimani, almost started World War III with Iran, you know, but it's like, that's the choice. We got the new right, um, you know, in one of my classes, I called it, it's a choice of uh, permanent global neoliberalism or neoliberalism in one country. It's like we can pick between the the Stalinists of neoliberalism or the Trotskyites of neoliberalism? Do we have a global permanent neoliberalism or do we just have neoliberalism in one country? Uh, that seems to be the debate. Um, so, you know, there you go. There you go. All right. Uh, what literature to start reading uh, when you start having a reading group in a college town? I would start with the educational manual of the Center for Political Innovation. We are city builders because that is a, a, a textbook that we compiled for educational purposes. It has texts from Lenin. It has texts from Marx. It has texts from Henry Wallace. It has texts from uh, uh, Edward Bellamy. It has texts from Mao in it. Um, and it, that is really, that is the textbook. Uh, it's designed for reading groups. It has study questions in it and everything. That is, that is designed for reading groups. So if you're starting a reading group, um, this was a question from Heather, uh, asked about what text to start. Um, you know, um, I, I recommend uh, starting with We Are City Builders, the educational manual of the Center for Political Innovation. That's where I would start. 
Now, Chaya says, wouldn't History of the Three Internationals be good for beginners? It would be, but it's very thick, right? And it, it might be good to read We Are City Builders first and get kind of a basic introduction, right? If you read the Mao essay, um, you read the Mao essay, you're going to get, you know, you know, a basic introduction to dialectics. Uh, if you read uh, the part from the Communist Manifesto by Marx, you're going to get a basic introduction to the Marxist approach uh, and, and historical materialism. Uh, if you read, you know, our our introductory essay, you're going to kind of get an overview of where the world is currently and and China and and socialism and the fall of the Soviet Union, et cetera. That's what I would recommend. Uh, we are city builders. And if you want to get it at print cost for your reading group, if you don't want to you know, pay full cost for all of it, if you want to get it, you know, you're doing a CPI reading group, if you want to get it at print cost, shoot me an email, calebmoppin at gmail.com. I can arrange to, to have them shipped to you at print cost. That's the way it works. And that goes for all CPI books. If you want a copy of the green book, uh, if you want a copy of, uh, you know, if you want these things, if you want for mass distribution, CPI books, just shoot me an email and I can send them to you at print cost, right? You know, the cover cost on Amazon is quite expensive. If you want them in bulk, uh, you can contact me and I can arrange for you to be to get them shipped. It might take a little longer. It's not going to come as quickly. It might come in, in a week or two weeks, but, but that's, um, that's how it works. So there you go. So there you go. Now, um, we are about to have a new book come out from the Center for Political Innovation. Very exciting. That new book is going to be published. I just got, we just finalized the cover. There's just a couple tweaks. I was going over the, uh, the, the interior text. There's just a couple tweaks that need to be made, but then it's going to be available. It's actually a compilation of Fidel Castro's writings uh, that we're publishing. And it's a special compilation. You'll see it. I'll, I'll introduce it on the stream when it's available. Very, very exciting. Uh, we're putting out a new book. Uh, well, it'll be the first new book we've had in a while, I think. So that's going to be pretty awesome. That's going to be pretty awesome. Next question. Um, socialists aren't city builders because cities create exploitation. Oh boy. I, I don't even know where to begin. I really don't know where to begin with that. Wow. You know, wow. Wow. Cities create exploitation. No, no. Cities are human beings coming together and organizing a civilization. Building cities is generally a good thing. Cities are kind of trading hubs, uh, basically. As human civilization was coming together, the construction of cities was a big step forward. Um, yeah. Um, and if you look at socialist countries, one thing that they do is they do a lot of city building. You know, There's a reason that Xi Jinping has the Shigon new area, and it's his model city that he's building. Uh, you know, there's a reason that uh, the North Koreans pride themselves on Pyongyang, and Pyongyang is the way it is. And I mean, you know, go to get on the Moscow subway. The Moscow subway is really beautiful, and you know, cities are generally, uh, generally considered to be, you know, a good thing. They're a symbol of civilization. You know, I think you know, you got Timbuktu, you got Carthage. The first cities were in Africa. It's worth pointing out um, that uh, the first cities were on the African continent. Timbuktu and Carthage uh, were some of the first cities to arise. Uh, after Timbuktu and Carthage, you had Mesopotamia and the Fertile Crescent uh, in what's now Iraq. Um, you know, uh, and uh, and then later, you know, you had Egypt and uh, you know Cairo and the Nile, and and and, and eventually you had Rome and Greece um, and Alexandria, and yeah, building cities is a good thing. Building civilization, building trading hubs, centers of human collectivism, and and this is generally a good thing. This is generally a good thing. Um, so there you go. 
that's generally a good thing. Um, do you know of any legit seed trading community? I don't know what a seed is that a marijuana thing where I'm not into drugs here. So seed trading communities, uh, is that a drug thing? I don't know what that is. Um, uh, but there you go. Uh, there you go. I don't, I'm, I'm not into drugs here. So there you go. Maybe that means something. Maybe that's a business term. I don't understand, but you said seed trading communities. I, I generally don't know what that means. So, all right. That's Anna Mars is asking that in the Rockfin chat and people should sign up on Rockfin, mind you, uh, because eventually they're going to kick us off of YouTube. It's only a matter of time before they kick us off of YouTube. So there you go. I, I mean, I will add that, you know, I mean, I like to, sometimes I'll go back and forth uh, with some of these people that are criticizing me, but some of these people that are criticizing me, it's just, you know, it's like, so there's BreadTube and BreadTube is trying to frame me as a fascist. That's Sophie from Mars. She did this whole video trying to say that when I criticized, you know, the anti-populist interpretation of the Holocaust by Hannah Arendt, that means I somehow I'm saying the Holocaust didn't happen, which is ridiculous. Um, you know, and, so this bread tube is coming at me and this is like bread tube. It's like some kind of deep state operation. It's like trying to get socialists to support, you know, us intervention and, and us imperialism against Russia. So there's that, right. But then there's just like, I'm facing, so I've got like, you know, that's coming down and it's not just against me. It's against gray zone. I love Max Blumenthal. I hung out with him. I've streamed with him on Rockfin. It's against Jimmy door. Jimmy door is awesome. I went on his show and, you know, it's against uh, Peter Coffin. It's against George Galloway. You know, it's like it's like a whole deep state operation against real leftists. That's bread tube. I wrote a whole book about this. Bread tube serves imperialism. But then there's like the stupid opposition to me, and it's people who hang out with Jason Unruhe. And I mean, it's just kind of pathetic. I, I I don't. There's no other way to describe it. It's just utterly pathetic. It's the stupid opposition to me. And I'm starting to wonder if it's even worth. Um, even worth and i'm opening your document uh jamie gray i'm opening it just to see what's in there you're taking notes good for you good for you jamie um you're taking notes uh but um but there you go um but i mean there's there's like the stupid opposition i i just i don't know what to call it other than that um i really don't know what to call it other than that um because it's it's like you know um you know, I mean, it's, it's sad. I mean, I, I kind of almost feel sorry for some of these people, but it's like, they, they, they don't do their homework. They don't, they don't know anything about what they're talking about, but they kind of feel like if they can engage with me, it'll get them more views and likes on their channel. And I don't know, like, you know, they're, they had this thing where they said that because I said that lumpen are criminals, that means I'm racist or something. And it's like the term lumpen literally means criminal. No, it does not mean black. No, it does not mean Latino. It's a term that means criminal. The, the word lumpen literally comes from the German word for miscreant. It is a term that means criminal. The definition of lumpen proletariat includes criminal. Like that's what the word means. So, you know, that's not what it means. Somebody who actually, I, I, I kid you not, this is how far they take it, right? So I said the lumpen refers to criminals because that's actually what the word means. These people then, one of them said that Caleb hates disabled people so much that he calls them all criminals. I never said a word about disabled people. I did not say a single thing about disabled people. I'm for disabled rights. The CPI, we, we had a, you know, an autism, autism rights panel at one of our events. I mean, we are, I mean, they, I mean, this, these people are just, and, and another one of them, this was great. They were saying on their stream that, um, that, you know, that supporting Lincoln makes me racist because there was no struggle to defeat slavery. 
Uh, slavery was on its way out anyway, and the ruling class just said, all right, we'll let you free as a minor concession. Well, that's bullshit. I'm sorry. John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry. Uh, Nat Turner's heroic slave rebellion. Um, you know, uh, the, the, you know, the work of Harriet Tubman, um, the, you know, 618 mil, or I'm sorry, 618,000 people died in the U S civil war. Uh, this was not a minor, a minor thing. And the, for these people to say that, right. Oh, you know, there was no struggle to defeat slavery. I mean, I, what planet are they living on? I mean, read W.E.B. Du Bois, read Marx, you know, read Engels, read, I mean, you know, read, you know, just open a basic U.S. history book for Christ's sakes. I mean, it's like, give me a break. I mean, and it's just like, and, and again, do they ever stop and go, oh, wow, maybe Caleb knows more about this than us. Maybe even if we disagree with him, we should listen to him instead of trying to twist anything he says into, you know, and it's just, it's, it's, they're struggling to remain relevant. You know, I mean, I want to ask you, what's more heroic, challenging U.S. imperialism and its war drive against Russia or challenging some guy on YouTube? Right, because that's what these people are deciding to do with their time. They're they're basically supporting U.S. imperialism against Russia right now, and you know, trying to whip up anti-Russian hysteria. Um, and they're waging a campaign against me. And the bread tube version of it is like sophisticated; it's well put together. But the you know the the version that these people are putting together is just like stupid. It's just like stupid. So they're trying to be relevant. Maybe they're getting Patreon cash from from the same people that are having bread tube come after me. I don't know. Who cares? At the end of the day, I'm just going to keep doing this. Do people think I'm going to stop? I'm not going to stop. I am not going to stop. RT America shut down. I'm still here, right? You know, um, you know, people get mad at me, and I'm still here. People disagree with me. I'm still here, right? I'm still here. I'm still here. I'm still here. I'm still here. People come. People go. You know, I am going to keep being anti-imperialist, folks. I, I'm sorry. I got skin in the game now. You know, I risked my life on a ship to Yemen. I told you about what happened in the Ecuador airport. I'm in this for real, folks. I ain't going nowhere. I am in this for real, and uh, I am not going to back down, and I am going to... I am with with the anti-imperialists. I'm with the socialist countries of the world. I'm, I'm with the colonized African-American people who exist as a coloni colony within U.S. borders and a struggle for their national liberation. I'm with the working class and working families. I'm against their wars. I'm with Russia. I'm with China. I'm with Vietnam. I'm with Korea. I'm with Cuba. Um, um, that's where I'm at, folks. And I'm not going to stop. 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 And you know, you'll have to. You know, you can try to put me in prison. Maybe you can try to. You know, try to kill me. Uh, you know, but I'm just going to keep going. Just going to keep going. And we are going to keep marching ahead because we are. We are. We are the inheritors of the future. I mean, this is the way history is moving forward. I've taken up history's challenge. So have you. I'm not going anywhere. I've been doing this. I'm, I'm 34 years old. You know, people are starting to call me old. That's kind of interesting. I've never had that one before. People are starting to say I'm old. I'm old, right? People are calling me old um, as an insult. And that's interesting because it's like, you know, I mean, I'm not young. I'm not in my 20s. I'm not in my teens. Um, and some people have said that I have an old soul, right? And then, you know, I didn't have much of a social life when I was a... Uh, when I was a teenager, my parents didn't really let me go anyplace or have much of a social life. And my parents are both boomers. So I spent a lot of time with my, my parents as a teenager. And then I was in communist groups that tend to be dominated by boomers. So maybe it's just that I've spent so much time around boomers that I sound older than I am. 
But then again, I seem to talk so much about being in high school and I seem to talk about college experiences. Like sometimes I worry I live too much in my youth. It's like I'm living in, you know, back when I was young, back in my day, you know, so I don't know. Maybe I'm old, maybe I'm young. I'm 34, you know, so Jamie, Jamie Nix says you're, you're very young. Well, thank you. Thank you very much, Jamie. I appreciate it. And I, I, I've never had people call me old as an insult before. So that means I, things are changing, but you know, I haven't gone bald yet. You know, I haven't gone bald yet. I haven't uh, got gray hair yet. This is my natural hair color. So, hey, there you go. There you go. There you go. All right. Next question. MAGA folks are increasingly anti-imperialist and denounce NATO. Well, that makes sense. Look, during the Bush years, a lot of like kind of libertarian folks were in left-wing circles just because they were against the status quo. And that right now, if you're against what the ruling class is doing, you're going to be a MAGA person. And that's not good because there's a huge amount of anti-China hysteria in the MAGA circles and the Trump circles. There's a huge amount of anti, anti-immigrant bigotry, a huge amount of crazy QAnon conspiracy theories. But right now, it's very clear what CNN wants, what MSNBC wants, but even what Fox wants. Fox is, even though it's supposed to be this conservative Republican network and Tucker Carlson you know, doesn't speak according to their script, even still, um, you know, I mean, it seems like the mainstream of U.S. imperialism is the woke stuff. It's uh, the wo- wokeism in the name of uh, wokeism in the name of of you know imperialism in the name of wokeism and spreading the, such values. So because of that, um, because of that, a lot of people that are against the system are going to be attracted uh, to Trump, and they're going to say, "Look, they hate this guy. Trump is who they all hate." Uh, January 6th, these people stormed the Capitol. They must be revolutionaries. And that's why we're going to need to learn to talk to those folks as as tough as it will be. And that also the character of the right wing is changing. There's a lot more people of color. You know, you know, it used to be the right wing was almost entirely white people. That is that is not the case anymore. You know, Trump got more votes from black and Latino folks than any Republican president in recent history. Um, And that the you know, what we call the right is increasingly just becoming a place for dis- dissidents against the status quo, people that are critical of their wars, people who are, uh, you know, people that are critical, um, critical of the vaccine mandates, people that are critical of U.S. foreign policy. Look, they're trying to tell us now that Chris Smalls, right, the leader of the Amazon Workers Union, he's a crypto fascist. He's a Nazbol, uh, you know, why? Why? Well, he went on Tucker Carlson. Well, I'm sorry, did NBC invite him on? No. Uh, did, uh, you know, did, did, uh, did, did, did CNN invite him on? No. Uh, you know, so Tucker Carlson invited him on. Tucker Carlson even said, I'm not pro union. And he asked him about AOC blowing him off. And he said, well, I harbor no ill will toward her. They invited him to come on. And now they're calling Chris Smalls, a Nazbol, a red Brown, a right winger. You know, this is, again, if you are at all critical of the status quo, these people want to put you on the right. You're with them or against them. Just like Bush said, you are with us or against us. The war on terror. And the war on terror, you're with us or against us. We're going to fight Al-Qaeda. You know, I remember that. And that's that's what Biden's now saying. You're with us or against us. And BreadTube and Bosch all back him up. And if you, if you disagree with these people, that makes you automatically somehow on the right. It doesn't make any gosh darn sense. Uh, the seed question was about food. We must survive. Okay, good. I'm all for people growing their own food. Yes, I, I don't know anything about that, Animars, but, you know, I'm all for people's farms and collective farms and organic farming. If you want to do your own thing, I'm, I'm cool with that. But, um, you know, I mean, that's the way it's going. And they basically declare you to be on the right if you have any questions about this. So, 
you know, I'm not for the left. I'm not for the right. I'm for socialism. I'm for, I'm for the class struggle. I'm for, you know, for anti-imperialism. Um, you know, technically we're left, we're the real left because we believe in historical progress, but there's this entity called the left. That's the synthetic left that is actually very Malthusian and against historical progress. And I'm not for it. I'm not for it. There's a wing of the oligarchy that dresses up its crimes in left, left clothing and left rhetoric. And I'm not with them. I am not with them. All right. Next question. Um, uh, tweet about Dugan and you ended up on the Nazi list. Well, I saw that. You know, Haas is doing this whole thing about Dugan. I've actually met Dugan, okay? And I've actually studied Dugan's work. I think that if you're a serious anti-imperialist, you should read that stuff because there's a lot of people. Oh, you like my George W. impersonation. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Mike Martinez. I appreciate that. Uh, I appreciate your support for the war on terror and the defeat of Al-Qaeda. Uh, we got to stop Fidel Castro down in Cuba. He's a dictator, and I am the decider. Uh, but anyway, you know, thank you. Thank you, Mike. But um, love you, Mike. Shout out to you out there in Miami. Uh, but, um, but um, you know, I mean, um, you know, if you want to understand the way people around the world who are not communists, who are anti-imperialists think, you need to read Dugan, right? Read the fourth political theory. Uh, you know, there's a couple other books he's written. I, I don't agree with him. He rejects the notion of historical progress. Historical progress is essential to my worldview. It is essential. Um, you know, Dugan also, you know, he has some other beliefs that are not mine. He draws from Evola, Julius Evola, uh, and traditionalism, etc. But, you know, he's also, you know, he knows Marxism very well. I mean, he actually wrote the constitution of the Russian Communist Party. Dugan is Dugan, all right? And these people that say Dugan is a Nazi or a fascist, he's not that. Dugan is an anti-imperialist intellectual in Russia who was part of the Communist Party, part of the National Bolshevik Party, and now he runs the Eurasian movement, which is his own think tank, and he has his own views. And, and you know, Dugan is not a Nazi. Dugan is not a Nazi. Um, you know, I'll tell you that much. His book, The Fourth Political Theory, spends pages and pages and pages going on against fascism, why fascism is not acceptable. Um, but, you know, I don't want to fall into the trap of defending Dugan, because if I do that, then it sounds like I agree with Dugan, and I don't agree with Dugan. Right. And that's how these things work. So it's like, you know, and it's like, again, all these people that they have a picture of me next to Dugan and it's like, aha, we got you. It's like, um, you know, yeah, I mean, I, it is what it is, man. I, I don't know, man. You just got to keep going. Right. You know, again, there's not there's a lack of intellectual curiosity on some people's part. There's this cancel culture. It's easier to cancel people through guilt by association than to actually engage with their ideas. I think that's what the important thing is. That actually learning what people believe and understanding people's ideology and teachings, it requires you to actually think and learn. And that's really dangerous, especially if you've been, you know, your worldview consists of good guys and bad guys. Because when it really gets down to it, a lot of these fake leftists, they have a worldview that goes like this. There are people that are bad and there are people that are good. And the good people are people who agree with us and the bad people are called fascists. Um, and what we got to do is we got to punish and ostracize and isolate and demonize all the fascists. And that's what we got to do. Well, that's like the dumbest thing I've ever heard. That's not, that's not Marxism. That's not, that's like, I think that's called borderline personality disorder. That's borderline personality disorder. That's not politics. Right. Um, but that's how these people think. And, um, if you, you know, they like you, they like you, they like you until you disagree with them. And then you become a fascist, um, you know, and so then they hate you, right? And it's this borderline personality disorder politics where there's good people and bad people 
And then once you do something they don't like, all of a sudden you you went from good to bad and they hate you. And they, I mean, it's just, it's just, um, yeah, it's it's lame. And it's like those of us who are actually trying to understand how the world works and, and why why the economy is collapsing, why we're heading toward a new world war, you know, that that's a much, you know, much better better way of understanding things, but it requires people to actually learn something. And in the process of actually learning something, God forbid, you're going to have to understand what other people think. And it is what it is. It is what it is. So there's that next question, right? I've got my super chats written down. If anyone has anything else they want me to talk about, um, there, there we go. Oh, we got one more super chat here. It would be interesting to see the CPI publish an anthology of his works uh, so that people can actually read him for themselves. Uh, I can't actually do that because of the sanctions. It's actually illegal in the United States to print Dugan's works because of U.S. sanctions, right? Because if I were to do that, I would have to pay Dugan uh, royalties for his work. I mean, I mean he's a scholar, he deserve, and that's illegal. Uh, you can't do business with Dugan. So that could never happen, unfortunately. Um, not unfortunate. I'm not sure we would, to tell you the truth, because we put out a 21st century socialist and a Marxist worldview, and he's very much a traditionalist conservative. So I don't think we would publish his works. But even if we did, it would be illegal. You can't buy him on Amazon anymore. I bought his books on Amazon when I was first studying him after I met people in Venezuela who recommended I read him. I met people in Iran who recommended I read him. I studied his works, then I actually got to meet him in Russia. But it's illegal. You can't publish Dugan's works. He is on the sanctions list. His books are not available. Um, it's illegal uh, because of U.S. sanctions under U.S. law. He is a sanctioned entity, so you cannot do that. So, if I were to do that, I'd be—I might go to prison for violating sanctions. So, no, you cannot publish his writings. So, you know, your best hope is for a PDF floating around the internet or something, but you can't do business with him. It's illegal. Interesting. Uh -huh. um, left origins of fascism and woke fascism today. Well, okay, left origins of fascism, not exactly. Right. I mean, there's left influences on fascism, right? That Sorellianism and Sorellian syndicalism was a big influence on Mussolini. Uh, Mussolini was on the left originally. Um, and, and it was also a big influence on, you know, what they call national syndicalism and Sorellianism was also a big influence on Franco and Spain. Um, but, but fascism is largely almost always considered to be a movement of the right. Um, it has populist elements that are are considered to be perhaps left wing or offensive to like more traditionalist conservatives. But fascism is generally about restoring the past. It's about appealing to people's desire to restore and preserve traditional hierarchies. Um, you know, fascism generally generally has a right wing appeal. That said, if you read R. Palm Dutt and his very very good book good book Fascism and Social Revolution, that that um, ideology is irrelevant, right? There's nothing about fascist ideology that makes it fascist, right? The beliefs that fascists espouse are not that different than what nationalists and conservatives and other people espouse. Fascism is about what you do, not what you say. And that there are all kinds of crazy things that people say. You know, Mussolini had this weird high-tech futurist vision. The Nazis were all about, you know, knights and castles and Wagner and, and you know, going back to the German, German pre- pre-Roman Germany before the, the Roman Empire came to Germany and, and, and the Norse mythology and all of that. And, you know, and fascists have a lot of different historical narratives. But what keeps fascism together, what fascism generally, um, you know, is about is it is it is an attempt to stabilize capitalism by establishing an authoritarian state and engaging in mass destruction. 
uh, mass destruction, right? Driving living standards down, taking one section of the population and, and, you know, beating them down, driving living standards down and, you know, and setting up for war on uh, militarizing. It is, it is an attempt to stabilize capitalism by having, you know, it's usually one faction of the ruling class seizes power in a Bonapartist struggle and then engages in mobilizing society to carry out mass destruction in order to stabilize capitalism. That's the scientific Marxist understanding of what fascism is. There are three. Um, all right. Um, why does CPI uphold Huey Long, who is on the far right and anti-communist? Wouldn't you say you uh, wouldn't we say we have our own communists to uphold? All right. Well, tell you what, why don't I do that one next? You know, I'm not going to put you at the end, Kyla. Um, you know, Kayla, I'm going to put you right up there. You know, Huey Long. All right. Um, because I don't agree with the way you characterized him, but I, I'll talk about that. All right. But uh, there are generally three understandings of fascism, three uh, that um, that are put forward uh, on the um, you know on the Marxist movement. You have the first definition, which is just kind of the idea that fascists are right wingers, right? That that you know if Republicans become a little more authoritarian or a little more you know, right wing, they become fascist, right? The Republicans are kind of becoming more and more fascist, right? And that's, that's what's put forward by like the Communist Party USA, DSA kind of people. It's kind of a typical, your typical definition of fascism. Please give us a Marxist analysis of Robin Hood. Sure. Put that at the end though. Marxist analysis of Robin Hood. Then you have Trotskyites. And Trotskyites say that fascism is a movement of the middle class. The movement of the middle class, it's against big corporations and big capital, but it's also against the labor movement. And the, the ruling class uses it as kind of a, a battering ram against the labor movement. It's this kind of middle class radicalism that is used against the labor movement as a last resort by the capitalists to set up a police state. But it's always around and it's this weird kind of anti-communist middle class radicalism. Then you got like the weird ultra leftist definition where they say it's like if someone sounds like a communist, but they're not, then they're a fascist, right? They're social fascists, right? Um, and that's a weird one. And that comes out of, you know, it's like, you know, I think this did Mao uh, in that, during the 70s, the Gang of Four said the Soviet Union was social fascist and it preached socialism, but practiced fascism. You know, um, you know, that's that that's the ultra leftist, you know, definition of fascism, where fascism is anything that sounds like communism, but isn't. Um, but all three of those definitions have an element of truth. Fascists are right wing, generally and authoritarian. That's true. Fascists are generally a middle class movement that that the ruling class kind of hijacks for their own ends. That's true. Fascism often does try to have a more stabilized capitalism. Uh, and that can argue you can argue there's elements of socialist populist rhetoric in it sometimes. All of those things have a grain of truth in them, but they all don't get to the essence of it. Fascism is capitalism in decay, and it's about rolling back living standards and trying to beat, beat down the population and drive down living standards to stabilize capitalism. And it's a form of Bonapartism. It's one faction of the ruling class seizing power from the other capitalists trying to stabilize capitalism. That's, that's my, my definition of fascism. I think the best book on it is Fascism and Social Revolution by R. Palm Dutt. All right. Now, uh, Kayla asked about Huey Long, and she says Huey Long was on the right. Uh, why do we uphold him? I don't consider Huey Long to be on the right. And the reason I don't consider Huey Long to be on the right um, is because his entire political career was working against people on the right. Um, he was um, 
for example, uh, he was aligned with uh, the Roman Catholics of Louisiana. Louisiana is a southern state in the USA, and it was actually it's the only state in the United States that has parishes rather than counties. It was it was a French colony before the United States bought it, the Louisiana Purchase, and it has parishes instead of counties. And you know, New Orleans, there's a lot of Catholics in New Orleans, etc. So uh, you know, in in Louisiana, you have a lot of Catholics, um, and Catholics were considered to be, you know, at, at one point in the United States, they were considered to be a foreign group. And especially in the South, there was a lot of bigotry against Catholics. Huey Long, he emerged in politics uh, fighting a, in alliance with the Catholics against the Ku Klux Klan. The Ku Klux Klan was a big deal in the South, in, in politics in Louisiana, in the Democratic Party uh, in the 1920s. And Huey Long moved up the ranks of the Democratic Party in Louisiana by fighting the Ku Klux Klan. That's not right wing. That's left wing, right? And the fact he was aligning with Catholics against the KKK, that's left wing. Um, his mentor, Huey Long's mentor, uh, was a guy who was in the Socialist Party. Now, the guy was not a Marxist, and he was in like the farmer, the rural, southern populist wing of the Socialist Party. But the guy who taught... Um, who taught Huey Long everything he learned was a guy in the social, everything he knew was a guy who was in the Socialist Party. Um, the other thing is that um, in the 1930s, um, you know, that the, the far right, uh, one of their main focuses was anti-Semitism, hating Jews. Um, you know, the, the Nazis were big and they hated Jews and Hitler hated Jews and, you know, and, and the Father Coughlin, who was this radio priest, he hated Jews. Well, Father, you know, I, a number of the people in Huey Long's administration were Jewish. Um, and he was attacked for that in the newspapers. They said Huey Long is a puppet of the Jews. He's an agent of the Jews. Uh, he actually became an expert on Hebrew and Jewish influence on U.S. law, right? And that was like a field. He was himself not Jewish. He was from a Protestant Southern family. But he was an expert on the Torah and the Talmud and how it had influenced U.S. law. He was a lawyer. He'd got, you know, gotten a law degree. And he became an expert, like had written like theses and papers on uh, the the uh, the Hebrew law and the Old Testament and how it impacted U.S. law and he had a number of Jews in his administration. So if he was on the far right, he wouldn't have done that. Now, fast forward to when Huey Long was in office. Huey Newton, the founder of the Black Panther Party, is actually named after Huey Long. And if you read Revolutionary Suicide, Huey Newton's autobiography, uh, he says that he's named after Huey Long because his parents were huge admirers of Huey Long because Huey Long enabled black women to become nurses because it was illegal for black women to be nurses in the state of Louisiana. And that Huey Long changed the law and enabled black women to go to nursing school and become nurses. And that was huge. And that, you know, for African-American folks in Louisiana and a very poor state to change the law so that black women can start working as nurses is a really big deal. That improved a lot of people's lives. Uh, Huey Long, he started the Share Our Wealth movement, uh, which was his like populist movement that he started. And there were black ministers uh, who were leaders of it and directed it. There were black churches that affiliated with it and joined it. The Share Our Wealth movement was an interracial movement, which again, back then in the South, you know, um, you know, that was, you know, that was not something people did. Uh, Huey Long was largely in Louisiana politics. He was considered to be left wing. Um, he was not a communist. The reason he was not a communist was because there was no labor movement to speak of in Louisiana at that time. It was a rural state. Huey Long was a champion of the small farmers, of the peasantry, right? Basically, right? He was a 
the sharecroppers and the small farmers. That's who he was fighting for. And there was no union movement for him to speak of, right? There was a union movement in Alabama. There was a union movement in, in some other parts of the South. But Louisiana, there was barely any. There was barely any Communist Party in Louisiana. There was no, no labor movement. So, um, you know, oh, I'm getting to that. I'm getting to that, Kayla. There's plenty more, plenty more. So let me get to the, the important part. So, so he was kind of, he was aligned with small farmers. And the main way he helped small farmers was he built schools, go to night school and not be illiterate. So their kids could go to school. He gave their kids all free textbooks, um, you know, and he built infrastructure. He built better roads so they could take their crops to the market. And, you know, he fought for poor people and they tried to impeach him. And every time they impeached him, he would bring thousands of poor people to the Louisiana state capitol and they would shut the city, you know, down until, until they gave in. So he was considered, you know, an ally of, of the poor people. The reason that he was considered right wing by some is that, okay, so first he was governor of Louisiana. In 1928, he was governor of Louisiana. And I believe it was like, what is it, 1934 or, or towards the end of his life, he became a U.S. senator. And when he was a U.S. senator, um, at that point, he was a Democrat, but he was fighting against Roosevelt. He thought Roosevelt didn't go far enough with his New Deal. And the Share Our Wealth movement was largely accusing Roosevelt of not going far enough. Um, so that was one thing. And that the main way that Huey Long had paid for all of his social programs in Louisiana was with oil money, because Louisiana is a very oil-rich state. And the oil of Louisiana was owned by the Rockefellers. So Huey Long, basically, he built a united front of small business owners, small farmers uh, in Louisiana, got elected, and he started kicking the ass of the Rockefellers and taxing the Rockefellers out the ass on every ounce of oil that they pumped out of the Louisiana. That's what he did. And he used taxing oil to bring in huge amounts of revenue to the government of Louisiana. And then with that money, he built schools. And he built bridges and he built hospitals and he wiped out illiteracy and he did all this great stuff by kicking the axe of the Rockefellers, right? The Rockefellers were Roosevelt's main ally, okay? So there was a fight in the ruling class between the factory owners, the National Association of Manufacturers, and the Rockefellers. The Rockefellers were supporting Roosevelt and the National Association of Manufacturers were supporting the Republicans, the NAM. All right. And the NAM, the National Association of Manufacturers, that's Henry Ford and Henry Morgan. They didn't like labor unions because they considered labor unions. Oh, they're going to they're, they're factory owners. They don't like labor unions. Whereas, you know, the Rockefellers were not as concerned about labor unions because they made money by dominating the oil markets. They were more concerned about, you know, about maintaining, you know, British and American domination of international trade routes. So they were actually more threatened by Germany. And when, you know, when Hitler came into power, and, and Hitler, you know, canceled the, you know, stopped paying back American, you know, debts and was canceling American banks. And some of the maneuvers that Hitler took on behalf of the industrial capitalists of Germany were a threat to the Rockefellers that, you know, that so because of that, because there was this divide in the ruling class, Huey Long was anti-Rockefeller. Roosevelt was aligned with the Rockefellers and Roosevelt aligned himself with the labor movement. There was no labor movement in Louisiana. So in the final years of his life, when he was in Congress, he was attacking Roosevelt and he started hanging out with, with people that were attacking Roosevelt, you know, for, for, you know, were attacking Roosevelt. Right. And he, he hung out with Townsend. There was a guy who had the Townsend plan, which was like this, this plan to like fix the economy. And then there was this guy, um, you know, and Norman Thomas of the socialist party 
Um, and he started hanging out with people that, that, you know, the Communist Party was aligned with Roosevelt against the National Association of Manufacturers. Um, and, and, um, and Huey Long was against Roosevelt. And that, you know, kinda in the final years of his life, he's sharing the stage with not so good people like Father Coughlin and such because he's against Roosevelt and against the Rockefellers. And that's what you have to understand is there was a division in the ruling class and he was on one side and the communist party and the labor unions were on another side. And so that's why he's remembered as right wing. Um, that's why I guess some people considered him right wing. The idea is if you're with, with Roosevelt, that means that, you know, you're, you're good. And if you're against Roosevelt, that means you're a fascist. Well, the Ku Klux Klan was, was, was with Roosevelt. You have to remember, right? The Ku Klux Klan were Democrats during this time. And the Jim Crow, all the Jim Crow governors that were lynching people, they were all with Roosevelt. Now, Roosevelt's wife, uh, she was critical of lynching. And the Communist Party was also with Roosevelt. And they were protesting Roosevelt. But, I mean, if the Ku Klux Klan are fascists, they were with Roosevelt, right? Because they didn't, you know, I mean, so it's complicated. That's all I can say. But, and then, then the main thing is, and many people have pointed this out, Huey Long was killed. and and he could have, you know, at the time he was killed, he could have gone one way or the other way, right? That, that he was killed in 1935. And 1936 was the presidential election where Roosevelt got reelected. And 1937 was the sit-down strike wave. And if Huey Long had been alive in 1937, it would have been clear, was he on the left or was he on the right? If Huey Long had been supporting, you know, had been supporting strike breaking and attacking the labor unions, he would have been a fascist at that point. Um, however, he was killed before that. He was killed when he was criticizing Roosevelt from the left on an economic program. He was opposed to the Ku Klux Klan. He was defending Roman Catholics. Uh, he was more sympathetic to black people than any governor of, of, of a southern state, you know, at that point. I mean, he was registrations of black people increased under, under Huey Long's governorship. and. And, you know, he, he was providing services that a lot of black people had access to. And, you know, he was he was improving the lives of African-Americans in a lot of ways. He was criticizing Roosevelt from the left. And he was starting to kind of talk with people that were criticizing Roosevelt, like Father Coughlin and people that weren't so good. And then he died. And that was it. And then he was killed. Um, there was actually a song, a country song uh, at the time that that um, Huey Long was killed. Um, it went like this. Oh, they shot Huey Long in Louisiana as he walked up the Capitol steps. Yes, they killed Huey Long in Louisiana where he took on the capitalists. He was seen as an anti-capitalist, right? Um, th at the time that Huey Long was killed, it was very clear there was an attempted military coup against him by the state militia uh, that, that tried to overthrow him. Um, and all the cartoons in the newspapers in Louisiana that didn't like him had him with hammers and sickles next to him. Uh, you know, they had hammers and sickles. It was, they called him a communist. They said he was a communist. Um, you know, there's a documentary you can watch about Huey Long where they're interviewing some Southern guy who hated Huey Long. And they said, you know, he called it share the wealth, share the wealth. He called it share the wealth. Couldn't call it socialism. Couldn't call it communism because that scare people. So instead he called it share the wealth. That sounds nice. and. And later in the film, I think it's the same guy, they say to him, he said, you know, everyone in, in our neighborhood said it was about time somebody shoot that son of a bitch. And, you know, it's, you know, these rich people, they wanted to kill you, Elon. Um, you know, so, you know, it's, it's, it's complicated. And it shows that these things get very, very, very complicated, right? And that, again, right, if Huey Long had lived 
And and when the sit down strike wave had happened, if he'd been against the, the sit down strike wave, he would have at that point. Yeah, he would have been a fascist. But Huey Long. It wasn't clear. That wasn't clear. He wasn't clearly on the right. Uh, he was to the left of Roosevelt. But I, that's how I would put it. He was to the left of Roosevelt. But I think that's a really good way of putting it, um, you know. Uh, and he was to the left of Roosevelt, but because of the Rockefeller thing, he was starting to talk to some people who weren't so good. And then he died. Um, and then he was killed. And then that was that, um, you know, and that was that. Um, and it's, it's a tragedy. Um, I admire Huey Long in a lot of ways. I admire Huey Long. Uh, you know, uh, you know, I think he was a good guy. I don't know about does CPI uphold Huey Long. Well, I mean, you're not going to find like, you know, it's like we, you know, follow the teachings of the great Marx, Lenin and Huey Long. It's not that's not you won't find that. I quote Huey Long. I talk about Huey Long. Um, some of my books, I, I talk about Huey Long in a positive light. Um, so does Greg Pallast, by the way. Greg Pallast, uh, he talks about Huey Long. That's a great journalist who's done work around Venezuela. But, you know, I'm not a Huey Longist. I wouldn't say we're not starting our new share our wealth movement. Um, there's been a proposal that we publish some of Huey Long's writings that are in the public domain. I'm open to that. We have a lot of proposed book projects right now, but you know, I wouldn't say Huey, CPI. It's not like we uphold the one true thought of Huey Long or something like that. But he's he's a figure who fought for working people, um, you know, uh, and was was you know basically moving Louisiana toward kind of a state-run economy. And uh, so you know, I I draw from inspiration from him, and you know, his slogan: "Every man a king." But these are all good questions, Kayla. I'm glad you asked. Glad you asked. All right. Um, all righty. Uh, what differentiates ML socialist countries from non-ML socialist countries? At this point, not much. Not much. I mean, in the 20th century, there were some clear differences. ML socialist countries tended to have one-party leadership of a Marxist-Leninist party. Uh, they tended to have the political and economic model of the Soviet Union. However, nowadays, most socialist countries that are led by ML parties, China, Vietnam, uh, Laos, um, you know, Cuba, North Korea, those countries are led by Marxist-Leninist parties, but they, they basically have market sectors, just like, you know, BAF countries do, just like Bolivarian countries do. Um, they tend to put out a political line that is eclectic. You know, in China, they uphold Confucius. Um, and they talk about, you know, how their socialist model is very much inspired by Confucius, um, you know, um, you know, and that's kind of an eclectic line. Mao was very against Confucius, but now, you know, they, they, they argue that, you know, that, that, you know, Mao is an influence on Chinese socialism, but so is Confucius. So nowadays, you know, 21st century socialism in the Bolivarian countries and the Ba'ath countries and, you know, in other anti-imperialist states. You know, China, it, it, the line between ML, you know, mar explicitly Marxist-Leninist socialist countries and non-Marxist-Leninist socialist countries is not clear. You know, and even like the Ba'ath countries, the Ba'ath countries, they had one party, they had five-year economic plans. It was just, it was the Ba'ath party. And, you know, they, they even studied Marx in their schools and stuff. They learned Marx, but they learned that, you know, that, that, that Marx was a big influence on the Ba'athist ideology but ultimately, you know, they followed a specific Arab form of socialism called Baathism, right? Uh, Baathist Arab socialism. So even the Baath countries were very, very close. And Libya also. Libya and the Baath countries were very, very close to the Soviet style. Um, you know, you know, that's pretty clear. Now, 
you know, the Bolivarian countries, you know, where, you know, the state controls major means of production, Venezuela, they control the oil, and then the oil like subsidizes the rest of the economy. You know, that's more, that's, that's, you know, that's similar to what Libya did, but then Venezuela, it's not a one party state, you know, there is an opposition that's very well represented in the government, you know, in, in Libya, and in Syria, and in Iraq, uh, the, 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 socialist and anti-imperialist forces they had total control of the government um but that's not the case in venezuela you have opposition figures in the government right so um huey long improved working people's lives damn right he did damn right he did and that's why he's still so widely loved in louisiana um but yeah there you go all right next question um larouche's and webster tarpley well, the LaRouche people are my friends. You know, I don't agree with them on a lot. They are not Marxists. They were Marxists. They were Trotskyites back in the 70s. 60s and 70s, they were a Trotskyite organization. Um, and starting really in like the early 80s, they moved away from Marxism. And they argue, now they follow the economic teachings of Friedrich List, the German economist, and Henry Carey. Uh, they view the struggle not as between capitalism and socialism, but as between the American system of economics and the British Empire system of economics. Um, however, some of their main points are things that I think, you know, you know, some of the, I shouldn't say their main points, but things that they are advocating for, I also advocate for. They want peace with Russia and China. I want peace with Russia and China. They want the U.S. government to spend money on infrastructure. I want the U.S. government to spend money on infrastructure. They, um, they want more money for scientific research and fusion energy. I want more money for scientific research and infrastructure. Um, you know, they want, uh, they are concerned about the Malthusian wing of American capital. And they talk a lot about the Anglo-American establishment and the influence of like British imperialist ideas and, and British imperialist ideology on a faction of the ruling class. I think that's also very important. They talk about, you know, the synthetic left and CIA drug stuff. I talk about that. So, there, you could argue there's a LaRouchean influence on the way I talk. But that said, there are some things that, that I fundamentally disagree with them about. I think climate change is real and is man-made. They don't. Uh, you know, uh, I believe in Marxism and dialectical materialism. They don't. Uh, they have a more or less idealist view of the world. They argue that ideas define reality. Um, and that, you know, uh, Lily and I, we actually went to one of their uh, house parties one time and we started talking and we started talking about Haiti and the situation in Haiti and how Haiti has been, you know, they, that most people in Haiti burn charcoal in order to eat and how that's bad for the environment and how that's, you know, and why is that? And we were both agreeing that China should go to Haiti and help them build infrastructure, et cetera. And we were agreeing on that. Um, but then, you know, it came to a question of why, why is Haiti still, you know, under this, this system? Why do the, why does the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, why do they keep Haiti underdeveloped? And I said, because they make more money. Because it, when countries industrialize, they're no longer impoverished client states. And I, I maintain that it's about economics. And it's the Leninist understanding of imperialism, the highest stage of capitalism. They said, no, it's about the oligarchical mindset. They think ideas define reality. We think reality and the material world defines ideas. They are not materialists. They are very vehemently opposed to materialism they very much argue that it's about you know the spiritual side of man they they're very religious you know they do god i uh they they do believe in god they're they're christians uh, and they have a more or less i wouldn't say they're christians i think there's muslims in the group too but they have clear sets that are very important to them and you know whereas with with me uh, i see things 
Marxists and dialogue material. I respect them, and they're not fascists, and they're not anti-Semites. And in fact, among their members, the ones I know, a number of them are, are Jewish, and they're not anti-Semites, and they're not Nazis. But, you know, they're, you know, they're the LaRouche people, right? And I respect them, and I don't agree with them on a number of points. And there's a lot in their history. I mean, they've said, they've taken so many positions over the years, you know, and I'm sure you can dig up all kinds of things they've said over the years that I don't agree with. Um, and that's that. Now, Webster Tarpley is no longer with them. Webster, Webster Tarpley uh, ended his relationship with them in the 90s. I met Webster Tarpley. This is another person that I met once. You know, I've met Daniel and, and other people from the LaRouche movement many times. Webster Tarpley, I met one time in my entire life. Only once in my entire life have I ever sat down and talked with Webster Tarpley. Webster Tarpley was a um, member of the LaRouche organization. Um, and he quit their group in the 90s. He runs, he has his own website, World Crisis Radio. And back in 2015, I went to a protest that he organized outside the United Nations. Uh, it was called Welcome Putin, the Peacemaker. And it was when Putin was sending troops to Syria to support the Syrian government against uh, ISIS. Um, and so I went to it because it was an important demonstration. And I'm glad I went to it. Um, and, uh, you know, it was, it was fine. It was a good rally. I agreed with everything there. Um, but then shortly after that, Webster Tarpley, he went off the deep end and he believes in Russiagate and he believes Trump is a fascist and he went completely off the deep end. Um, you know, he got sued by Donald Trump, uh, Donald Trump's wife. I think it was Donald Trump's wife sued him and he completely embraced Rachel Maddow and he's pro Hillary Clinton and he's, you know, he's completely become, you know, I mean, he's on the, you know, the wrong side of things uh, as, as far as I'm concerned. So you know, I'm not, you know, whatever. I, I went to a rally with him one time at a time that we were saying similar things about Russia and Syria and stuff. But now he no longer is where I'm at. So, yeah, I mean, again, there you go. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, again, and I, I really like these people who disagree with me can't do any work, right? So it's like there's a picture of me and Tarpley. Yep, not ashamed. Guilty as charged. There's a picture of me and Dugan. Yep, not ashamed. Guilty as charged. These people don't want to dig into what Tarpley believes what I believe, what Dugan believes. They don't want to dig into that. All they want to do is be like, this person is bad. And you talk to somebody who's bad. So that makes you bad. And it's like, it's like, come on, like, why don't you dig into what these people said? Why don't you dig into why I was sitting next to them? Why don't you dig into what I actually believe? But that would require you to actually think and understand ideas. And these people don't want to do that. All they want to do is just go, bad 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 and and they're pro-imperialist when it gets down to it most of them so you know uh i guess the issue and I, I talked about this with daniel right the issue is that back years ago in like the 80s when webster tarpley was in the larouche organization and this is very interesting when he was in the larouche organization he was involved in a, a an effort there was like a proposition on the ballot in california that called for quarantining people with hiv and the reason for that was because the science around HIV at the time was not um, was not very clear. And, you know, and many people argued that that, you know, that um, that law was was feeding into homophobia. Right. They said that that would have led to like concentration camps for gay people. Well, I'm sorry, we've been through covid. You know, quarantine is not the same as concentration camps. So that's you know, that's bullshit. But but some people argue that that law was that. But what's interesting to note is that at the time that the LaRouche people were campaigning for quarantining people with HIV, do you know who else was quarantining people with HIV? Cuba. 
Cuba was quarantining people with HIV. And you know who else supported Cuba in quarantining people with HIV? Disrupt protested very loud for in support of Cuba. Um, you know, uh, you know, I I seen accounts on Reddit that post about an average sixty times a day that do do just what you described, guilt by association for every anti-imperialist. Exactly. Cuba quarantined people with AIDS. Iraq quarantined people with AIDS. Libya, I think, did. A lot of socialist and anti-imperialist countries um, quarantined people with HIV uh, because the science wasn't clear. You know, many people in the Soviet Union and in Africa believed that AIDS was a bioweapon invented by the government. Um, you know, uh, you know, they believed that. Um, you know, now, obviously, they were wrong. Or maybe they weren't wrong. I don't know. We don't know. I mean, I assume they're wrong. Let me just put it that way. Based on the science as it is now, AIDS is not a bioweapon. It was something that that occurred, quote unquote, naturally. But, but you know, we don't know. At the end of the day, we don't know. But at the time, many people in the socialist country thought it might be a bioweapon against the anti-imperialists at the time. You have to remember the gay people at that time. You know, nowadays, you know, gay people are everywhere. And being gay, you know, we have gay marriage, etc. But back then, in the 70s and 80s, the gay movement was associated with communism was associated with protesting and activism. So there were many people, you know, in the socialist countries that said all the gay people in America are getting AIDS. This must be a bioweapon invented by the imperialists to kill communists. That was the belief. And a lot of countries in Africa that had revolutionary movements had big age outbreaks. And so there were a lot of people in the Soviet Union and in Africa and in Asia and in Latin America who thought that AIDS might be a bioweapon by the imperialists. They thought that maybe it wasn't actually transmitted the way it's transmitted. They thought maybe it was transmitted in other ways. And so Cuba quarantined people with AIDS and, 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 you know, and, and Libya and Iraq quarantined people with AIDS. And maybe that was the wrong thing to do, but people didn't know. People did not know at the time, right? People did not know the health effects. And so, yes, Tarpley, a guy that I met one time, went on, you know, went on CNN and was supporting quarantining people with HIV. Well, I don't support that, obviously. So, and again, I've said, I don't agree with the LaRouche group on their ideology. I agree with them on building infrastructure. I agree with them on supporting Russia and China. And I agree with them on scientific you know, research. And I agree with their concerns about Malthusianism and the British Empire, et cetera. But we have different worldviews. And that's that. Like, again, you know, again, like the cancel culture, folks, the cancel culture. And it's like, you know, so there you go. I answered that question. So I mean, have fun making your hit piece video about the answer I just gave. Uh, but that is the answer. Um, so there you go. Um, will Bolivarianism come to Mexico? <laughs> well, AMLO, AMLO, you know, is heavily influenced by Bolivarianism. His, you know, his leadership in, in Mexico, he comes out of the Oaxaca teachers strike. In Oaxaca in 2006 in Mexico, the teachers went on strike and it became it became like a workers' rebellion. I mean, people seized control of radio stations, and it was like dual power. Like workers' councils were taking power. It was like a revolution in Oaxaca. It was like a temporary revolution, the general strike in Oaxaca in 2006. And it was after that that AMLO became kind of the leader in Mexican politics who was associated with the Oaxaca rebellion. Um, and that's when you know he first ran for president. He probably won, but they rigged it against him. He ran again. They probably won again, and they rigged it against him. And, you know, he was much more radical sounding then than he is now. Now he sounds a little more toned down. But, but AMLO is heavily influenced by Bolivarianism. That said, though, is he going to implement a, a program to change 
to change uh, um, property relations? Is he going to implement policies to change property relations and move towards socialism? I don't think he's going to do that anytime soon because the balance of forces. One thing that many people have pointed out is the Mexican deep state uh, is, is against him. Uh, the Mexican deep state, the police agencies, the military, uh, the intelligence of Mexico, they are completely directed by the United States. I mean, that, and that's been very, very made very clear to me also. I've seen that up close. Like the, um, you know, the, the, Mexican, the Mexican deep state is the American deep state. It's like a wing of the CIA. Right now, there's a strong labor movement in Mexico and AMLO has a, pot, a lot of popular support. And, you know, his coalition has a communist party in it. Right. In Morena, his coalition, there is a the PT, the Workers Party is part of it. And they're a communist party. So it's complicated. Let me just put it that way. It's complicated. But, you know, at this point, yes, he's heavily, heavily uh, involved in, you know, in in in, you know, government. And he's taking some pretty strong anti-imperialist stance, supporting Maduro um, et cetera. But at the same time, changing property relations, you know, is not a question of just getting up and declaring it. I mean, you know, and, and like, you know, I, I think he wants to figure out how he can move Mexico in a good direction, bring, you know, China into Mexico to build infrastructure, you know, lift Mexican people out of poverty, et cetera. And, you know, I think ultimately AMLO probably on some level, maybe not in the same way I do and not in the same way that full-on revolutionaries do, but on some level, he does want to move Mexico towards some form of socialism. Um, but it's a question of how can he build up the forces to do it? And um, right now, you know, it, it's not, you know, the balance of power is not in his favor in order to do such a thing. Um, so there you go. All right, next question. Um, gulags. I mean, what about it? I mean, gulags existed. They were labor camps, prison labor camps, and they were awful. And even according to some of the strongest supporters of the Soviet Union, there were a lot of people who went to gulags who didn't belong there. There was what they called Yezhov Shina, uh, where the, um, you know, um, you know, you know, the, the head of the secret police, you know, had a like campaign of terror, the great terror. There was fear. People were turning in their neighbors and such. And, you know, look, I mean, the Soviet Union, I mean, it's amazing what they accomplished. They were surrounded. Uh, they, you know, 15 countries invaded after the Russian Revolution. They were blockaded. They were attacked. And in spite of all of that, you know, they built themselves up. They, they, they raised, they industrialized the whole country, wiped out illiteracy, electrified the country, defeated the Nazis. They invented space travel. You know, what they accomplished in the circumstances they were in is nothing short of a miracle. And it shows that socialism is better than capitalism. But that said, you know, I mean, it was not, it was a hard, hard time. You know, they, they really improved life in Russia and the surrounding countries, but there was also a lot of heavy political repression and, you know, they maintained a very authoritarian state in order to get it done. And, you know, I'm not an apologist for gulags. I'm not an, I'm not going to tell you that they were okay or they were good. They were awful. And a lot of people who went there shouldn't have been in there. And, you know, that's that. I mean, I don't know what you want me to say, right? Um, you know, I mean. You know, uh, you know, the Soviet Union had a lot of problems um, and ultimately the Soviet system became so rigid it couldn't reform. It needed to reform in the 80s. They needed to change. They needed to become more like China and have a market sector. They needed to change the way the party was set up and and they didn't. They couldn't change. They couldn't bend. So they broke. So that's why, you know, the Soviet Union fell. But but yes, gulags existed and gulags are awful. And I mean, I don't, I don't know what more you want me to say about it. A Marxist analysis of Robin Hood. Well, that's interesting. Now, Robin Hood is is a legend, and I didn't. I actually started learning about this recently. 
Robin Hood is a legend that that goes all the way back to the Middle Ages, right? Um, and it was part of the spring games, you know, in medieval England. In England, you know, in the quote-unquote Dark Ages, in springtime, they would have these games, they called them. It were like, you know, it was like the Olympics or it was like these contests where people would shoot bows and arrows and they would throw things. And part of the spring games is they would act out the legend of Robin Hood. Um, and the legend of Robin Hood changed a bunch of times and it was just part of the, it was like this little play that they would act out in medieval villages and you know robin hood was a bandit but he was a good bandit there were bandits back then basically if you were a peasant you lived on the the, the land of the, the the noble and if the noble didn't like you he kicked you off the land well if you were kicked off the land you couldn't be a peasant you had no way to live so you became a bandit and so if you traveled from one place to another there was a very good chance you get by bandits and bandits were big scary people because the only way they could live was by robbing people um but robin hood was a bandit but he wore green and he was friendly and he was smiley and he made jokes and he it was like he was he was a lovable happy happy friendly bandit uh, another thing about robin hood robin hood was um you know robin hood was accompanied by a priest friar tuck and Friar Tuck was kind of a, it was poking fun at the Catholic hierarchy, right? Is that Friar Tuck was a priest, but he was a priest who was very fat and loved to eat and was always hungry um, and was kind of lazy um, and was part of a band of outlaws. And uh, Robin Hood was also accompanied by Little John, who was actually this really, really tall guy who carried a staff around. And Robin Hood was in love with Maid Marian, Maid Marian. And uh, Robin Hood was this, this legend about a good bandit, about a nice bandit who robbed from the rich and gave to the poor. And it was just part of the spring festival is that in the little towns and, and all of the little shires in, in, in England back in like 1300, 1400, they would have, you know, the spring games every year. And part of the spring games was they would have this performance of a play about Robin Hood. And what was weird is that Robin Hood was feudalism. Right. I mean, it, it was a mockery of feudalism. Right. Robin Hood is, you know, fighting the, you know, the sheriff of Nottingham and fighting Sir Guy of Gisborne and fighting the nobles. And he's fighting on behalf of the peasants. He's robbing from the rich and giving to the poor. Uh, you know, his assistant, Friar Tuck, is a priest who's like a mockery of priests, basically. He's like a, a caricature of priests. But that was all OK. And it shows that, you know, even in feudalism, where it was supposed to be this authoritarian system where no one could disagree, you still have satire. You still have parody. Robin Hood was a joke. It was a joke. It was a legend. It was entertainment. And it just became part of English culture. Um, just became part of English culture over the course of the Middle Ages. Then, because that story and legend had been around so long, around the time of like the Enlightenment, 1600s, you know, etc., all of a sudden, you know, they start writing down stories of Robin Hood. And at that point, Robin Hood changed, right? And Robin Hood became like a protest, a call to overthrow feudalism. And, and a lot of the stories of Robin Hood suddenly became about how the peasants are oppressed. He's kicked off the land and becomes an outlaw for killing one of the King's deer to feed his family. And, you know, and it's, you know, it, it suddenly becomes an anti-feudal allegory, right? And it changes. The legend of Robin Hood changed to be, you know, to be different, right? And that basically England, England, medieval England depended on two legends, the legend of Robin Hood and the legend of King Arthur. Neither of them are true, right? But the legend of King Arthur, the Holy Grail, all of that, that was really important to old England. And the legend of Robin Hood was also very, very important. And they're just two folk tales that really caught on 
uh, and just really, you know, became a big part of medieval culture. And it's really interesting because at the time of the Middle Ages, you have to remember, England was still, it was Christianized. It was Roman Catholic. They had the Bible. That was their, that the Bible and the story of Jesus and Easter and Christmas. That was their, their belief. But on top of the religious you know, rites and ceremonies, you also got some uniquely English rites and ceremonies. Um, war between China and Taiwan, if you guys really recognize this time. Um, and and you, you just like every other country, you'll have, you know, some unique legends and stories that are unique to that place. And that, you know, there is a lot of people have written about um, what they call, uh, you know, popular bandits or people's bandits. And this is every culture. Like I told you about Kim Il-sung, right? Kim becomes the son and, you know, pretty boy Floyd and, and, you know, and, and, you know, that, that the idea of a bandit who is like the, the people all support him uh, and it's the government that is corrupt, that is out to get him. That's, that's a legend, a story. So the, the Robin Hood legend, you know, is in every culture in every way, but the particular Robin Hood story that we know is very much an English creation. And it existed as this kind of fun, fun mockery of feudalism play that people did. And then it was adjusted. And actually many people have pointed out that the, um, the, the story of Robin Hood that we've all seen in the movies is bullshit. Like there's no way it could have ever happened. Um, you know, the story is that, you know, the King Richard, the lion hearted, King Richard the Lionhearted was off fighting the Crusades, and so his evil brother Prince John took over the government. And um, you know, King Richard the Lionhearted, uh, you know, was was you know is held ransom, and so you know Robin Hood is you know saving up the money and sending it to get the king freed, and that's all bullshit, right? Um, king Richard the Lionhearted, the reason he didn't go to England is he didn't speak English; he spoke French. Um, and, you know, I mean, it was like, it was, yeah, the, the idea he was the good king and it was law, that, that's all bullshit, right? You look at the history of, of Richard, Richard the Lionhearted, that's not what happened, right? That whole thing is, yes, he did fight in the Crusades, but yet he, like, hated England. He didn't speak English. He only spoke French. Um, so, so that's that, um, you know, thank you. Um, you know, and that's that. That's all there is to it. Um, and, um, you know, I mean... You know, I mean, it's, it's, you know, and th there's, there is a Marxist uh, version. I understand there's a novel uh, that was published in the 1930s that was the Marxist Robin Hood. It's called Bows Against the Barons. I've never read it. So if someone wants to go read a, a Marxist adventure story, that's a, a communist interpretation and retelling of Robin Hood, go read Bows Against the Barons. I haven't read it myself, but that's the Marxist version of Robin Hood. Um, but then, you know, the, the version of Robin Hood that's very popular in the United States where King Richard the Lionheart goes away and, and Prince John and the Sheriff of Nottingham and the archery contest. And that's very American, actually. Right. Um, even though I think it was written by an English person. But that's, you know, in, in, in Tom Sawyer uh, by Mark Twain, Tom Sawyer reenacts it um, and that that Robin Hood became popular in America. That was a novel that was like distributed in the United States at like the time of the U S civil war. And that version of the Robin hood story that has been made into a million movies. There's an archery contest at the end to trick Robin hood. They set up an archery contest and, you know, and, and made Marion, he's in love with her and she's supposed to marry 
think she's supposed to marry the sheriff of Nottingham, but she doesn't love him. She loves Robin Hood. And, you know, um, uh, you know, the King Richard, the Lionheart shows up at the end and saves the day. You know, he's hiding and makes himself known. The king returns, long live the king. And then it ends, I think towards the end, Robin Hood is dying. And so he takes his bow and he shoots it out the window and says, where this arrow lands, you shall dig my grave. And, 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 uh, you know, you know, when he's old and dying in his bed and, and, uh, what's his name, where this arrow lands, you shall dig my grave. Um, you know, and, um, and then, you know, you know, Prince John, you know, and all, or not Prince John, but, uh, little John and, and Friar talk, oh, they're crying that their hero has finally died. And yeah, that whole thing, that, that's a, a book that was, I think it was written in Britain, but it was popular in the United States and it became part of like American cultures. So that's like an Americanization of an old English folktale. And it's funny how these stories have a life, like even now. Like, right, the people were talking about Robin Hood in 1300, and now we're in an English-speaking country with a very Anglo culture and roots, you know? And so, as a result, we all know who Robin Hood is. And it shows, like, Superman is one of these stories. Superman was written in 19, 1939, but we're going to know about it, you know? 100 years from now, people are going to know about Superman. Is it some stories just touch a chord, and they last, and Robin Hood is one of those stories. I hope that satisfied you. All right. Uh, will there be war between China and Taiwan if the USA recognizes Taiwan? Well, I mean, maybe. Maybe. I mean, and that would be bad. I hope not. I hope the USA doesn't recognize Taiwan, and I hope there's not a war between, the, the, between China and Taiwan. Um, you know, I, China, Taiwan is China, and, you know, Taiwan is not a country. You know, Taiwan is part of China. It always has been. And China is very, very sensitive uh, because they know that when the imperialists colonized them and kept them poor, the way they did it is by keeping China divided. Um, but, you know, that said, I, you know, war is not good. And it would be ideal if Taiwan was just able to be incentivized to gradually rejoin the, main, uh, the, the mainland, you know, and, if, and the USA were to stay out and let, let um, you know, let the people of an island that's part of China and the people on the Chinese mainland you know, just have deeper and deeper ties and eventually merge to one. That would be great, right? And the USA pouring weapons into Taiwan and, and such is not good. All right, folks, we're done. Upsurge in the struggle against U.S. imperialism is now emerging throughout the world. Ever since World War II, U.S. imperialism and its followers have been continuously launching wars of aggression. But the people of various countries have been continuously waging revolutionary wars to defeat their aggression. And while the danger of a new world war still exists, and the people of all countries must get prepared, revolution is the main trend in the world today. All right, folks, the danger of a new world war still exists. People of all countries must get prepared, but revolution is the main trend in the world today. Good night. Good night.